this deployment with uh, infantry to uh, Afghanistan, can you uh, talk about it? it? It turned out it was the most deadly Canadian tour there was. That's when we had the most casualties. We rolled out to Masamgar, so this is kind of northwest of Kandahar City, right along the Argandab River, right in spiritual birthplace of the Taliban. We get in the riverbed, and we're driving up the riverbed, and a couple hundred meters up, first RPG comes in. It's one of the labs. No damage. We had the cages. Uh, didn't really do much, and then mortars start coming in. It's like, okay, this is, this is what we're here for, right? Um, and we just start going to work. Welcome to Mic Drop, the podcast where relevancy is irrelevant and we don't give a shit about your feelings. Ladies and gentlemen, as always, it's both an honor and a pleasure to welcome my next guest to the podcast. He spent 14 years with the Canadian Army in the Canadian Special Operations Forces, or CANSOF, with Joint Task Force 2 as a sniper. He's got 10 deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan, a few of which we're going to focus on in this interview. He's the CEO of SFE, which is Special Forces Experience, which facilitates post-traumatic growth, as well as a project called Citizen Green, which we're going to get into. He does mainline syrup before he shoots people in the face, and then he apologizes for it, eh? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the stage, Jeff Depati. Thanks for having me on, Mike. It's yeah. a real pleasure. I feel like I'm on a fucking late night talk show here. <laughs> well, that's that's kind of the uh, the goal. It's a little different than I think most uh, most setups on purpose. Is that uh, I like a little more. While it's yes, it's a formal interview. I like a it a little more, more casual. What's that? I said a little more me. Yeah. Well, just uh, you know, f- trying to focus more on you guys uh, as the guest and not the wide shot of two people sitting at a, at a table facing each other, which no, is how, I like it. I think it's great, man. But it's great. Uh, that, and it just, you know, they're usually long. So I like to be a little more comfortable and uh, I like to sit at a desk cause I have notes, but I want the, the guests to be comfortable. So I try to keep it that way, but uh, I appreciate you coming down. I know uh, it's hot as fuck down here right now. And um, you know, Canada is Canada. So I appreciate you, you uh, taking the time and, and uh, coming on the show. I, I'm, Real, real anxious to get into all your stories and, and hear about your experiences. Excuse me. Uh, what's the uh, the most influential book you've read? The most influential book I've ever read. I would say it's a toss up between two: the Gene Keys or Power versus Force. Uh, those are both the titles. Yeah, yeah, Gene Keys is one book. Okay, and then Power versus Force. I couldn't really break that apart and say the most influential out of those two. What's uh, what's the gist of each of them? The gist is like right here, these are all gene keys on my arm. And the really? idea is that human beings, according to this book, show up with 64 behavioral archetype patterns that operate at what we'll call a low vibrational shadow pattern, a mid pattern called the gift stage, and then acidic stage. And if you think of levels of consciousness, that's what it is. The ebb and flow between those. And it's kind of like a complete personality metric, if you will. Um, it's excellent. It, it, the the man who wrote it, I think he's the. I think he right now he's the greatest poet that's ever lived. Personally, what uh, when was the book written? Uh, I think it was published in twenty eleven. Oh, okay, twenty eleven. Yeah. So uh, what he's doing right now is pretty pretty forefront uh, in in that field. Yeah. So what <clears throat> what happened is um, 
he's condensed down a lot of what we'll call ancient wisdom, mm-hmm. combine that with modern sciences to map out our human experience. It does dive deep into the esoteric, um, as well as, like I said, the sciences and the humanities. Yeah. And, you know, if anyone decides to pick it up here, if you start reading it and it doesn't resonate with you, then you need to read that book. Yeah. It's, it's the first clue that you should read it hmm. um, because it's uncanny. Uh, I use it for all kinds of things when, uh, during all, any of my projects, any of my endeavors, whether it's with uh, other businesses or individuals, um, it, uh, it's been a big part of my life. That yeah. one. Is there a, uh, a mechanism with which you, you apply it like a, like a protocol almost that you go through and in, in how you use it? Or is it too, too broad spectrum to, well, yes and no truth is going to be paradoxical where you can get some what they call the hologenetic profile your hologenetic profile or my hologenetic profile and that kind of gets spit out and you can start there okay and then those are your key gene keys those are the ones that are uh, all the 64 archetypes everyone has to varying degrees um, but depending on your dna your epigenetics and your culturing some will fire more than others yeah so that's where, yeah, you can start with just getting the profile. Yeah. Um, and then, but where you go about it, it depends, right? Because everyone's on a different point in their journey through their lives, right? Yeah. We all mature and evolve differently. Some of us not at all. Most, actually. <laughs> like, most don't. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's like right on. Yeah. Right there. That's, that's well, why uh, it's important. Can you uh, show the, the, the tattoo to uh, that camera? Yeah, what uh so what we got is that's my business's logo the sfe okay stands for self-transcendence for everybody then each one they're actually hexagrams chinese hexagrams from the I Ching. but like i said he grabbed a bunch of different wisdom and condensed it down then he used these as what we call the keys for it and how many keys are there 64 and that's uh but each person's gonna have a different variant of those yeah and then each one has six sub variants it's kind of cool because it really does show that every, like mathematically there'll never be two people the same. Yeah. Um, and I, and I like that cause I do think that uh, modern day personality metrics try to boil people down to like this predictable pattern. Oh, you're one of 16 or something, but really everyone truly is a unique snowflake. If you yeah. will. Do you believe in reincarnation? Do I believe in reincarnation? What I believe is that, Consciousness flows through everything. That's what I call it. Some people might call it God. Some people might call it the Akasha. Um, physicists might tend to call it quantum energy. And it's between you and me, right? It, it doesn't stop. It uh, flows through everything. And I think whether you have a physical death or an ego death, you return. I say return as if you're separate. Only the mind keeps us separate from it. Um, but you return to that stream, that energetic. And even in physics, uh, they say information is never lost. Yeah. Um, so in that way, yes. But what I also think is in our DNA, uh, geneticists mapped out a good portion of it, but they got this huge portion, you know, 60 to 70%, if not more, that they call junk DNA. And I think in there... That's where the aliens come from. That's where the aliens come <laughs> from, yeah, yeah. I think in there, there's things yeah. that are stored, yeah. you know, and potentially you know down the road someone some things reignite and they start firing in certain patterns and maybe it feels like reincarnation that way 
you know, the universe is strange. It, it sure is. I mean, I, you know, I, I would say I scoffed at it and, uh, or, or, you know, was essentially a, a non-believer, but there, there are enough examples of like little kids that at three, four years old, just as they're able to communicate verbally, that have these recollections of things that, that there's no explanation in, in my opinion for, for them to have such detailed accounts of things that happened that are historically completely accurate you know, that, that are several generations removed from that, that their family doesn't even have anything to do with, you know, and they didn't realize that, that it wasn't just a dream until the parents like started looking into it and they're like, what the fuck? This, this is a story from, you know, world war two battle or whatever. It's like, to me, like if there was, if there was once that that happened, it'd be one thing, but like there, there's a lot of, not a lot of them. There's a number of them, you know, en enough to make me think there's gotta be something fucking to that. I'm not saying hook, line, and sinker, I believe that every, everybody is a recycled soul. Uh, but I think that there's something to it, whether it's, you know, consciousness flowing from generation to generation, or if there's some, uh, almost network of energy that exists in the universe that, that connects everybody, uh, you know, for, you know, forever, um, you know, that, that seems probably a little more likely, but, uh, it's fascinating shit. I mean, we could do a whole, whole episode on that. I know that's not why you're here, but what, what I, I don't mind touching on it though. Yeah. What happens is as humans, especially with our systems that we have, when children come into the world, they're what like right, right into the world, like fresh. They have basically what's called undifferentiated consciousness. There is no difference between me and you and this desk. Um, we put time and space in there intellectually. And that removes us from being able to pierce through that veil over time. Um, so I, I think what you're saying is more like dipping into the Akasha or the, like the Tesseract where that information's there and it's, it's stored informationally, physically, somewhere within the quantosphere. Um, but yeah, it's a super exciting topic. If you want to return to it at any time, I'm, I'm there yeah. for you. Cause that's, I, I, that's I, yeah, I mean, before we move on, I guess the, the big question then would be is what, what is it about that individual that, that allows that to, to come through in them and not most, most kids, you know, I think it's, what's called the scale of consciousness or the map of consciousness by a guy named David Hawkins is the, that's power versus force. That's the second book I mentioned where he actually uh, quantitatively validates what consciousness is and it's on a scale. So zero is like inanimate object. It still has consciousness. It has energy, um, but it has obviously not moved into um, intelligence uh, and anything like that. Um, feeling all those kinds of things but as you move up closer and closer and closer you get towards eventually what they'll call enlightenment or the godhead and some kids come into the world better prep for this you know their epigenetics is better yeah. so they, they had a healthier upbringing in the womb they're generationally healthier potentially um, maybe they just have a set of uh, genetic markers that fire proteins that allow them to come through that maybe it's just dmt you know it helps them pierce that veil Maybe their mom mainlined syrup growing up uh, while they were in the womb. Right? <laughs> yeah. Do you have kids? I do not have do kids, have no. Kids. Do you want to have kids? Um, I do. I'm not in a hurry. I, 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 um, on one of my first tours, my wife at the time, she was pregnant seven months. She lost her baby when oh, I was in And uh, that was the closest I got to being a parent. Yeah. And then... Um, my current partner, she was not able to have, well, we're separated now. We're still business partners. That's why I say partner. Yeah. Um, 
she was not able to conceive. She had the surgical procedure, but by that time we split ways. So oh, wow. I'm kind of in a, in a limbo state. Yourself, yeah. you got kids? I do, yeah. Nice. Yeah, it, it's fascinating to me, you know, again, seeing some of those things, talking about things. They're a little older too now, so a lot of the windows that I find uh, exceptionally fascinating now are, are kind of closed for them. But um, But it's still neat to see some of the, uh, things that I uncover as I get older and, and more interested in some of the things that we're talking about um, more so than I was. I, I wish I had been better read and, and more learned and, and more interested in them when they were younger or even before they were born. You've got a very important word up there. Yeah. Open-minded. Yeah. Yeah. I, to me, I guess the, I, I wish I had been more observant and more conscious of some of these concepts when you know before they were born and when they were first born and in those first few years where a lot of the, those things you just never get that time back i mean that's the case with every moment you spend with everybody but uh but you know in particular you know b- before they're they're able to communicate i think there's a lot to a lot more to kids there than most people ever pay attention to you know and, and i wish i had paid more attention to that then but yeah it's an important point though setting the groundwork you know, even if you want to call it like deep hippocampal memories or whatnot, yeah. those are the layers that get built on, right? Yeah. And if you can teach, I, 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 I don't, I like the word open-minded. I, I love it and I think it's a great, I use the words closed node thinking and open node thinking. So what happens is informationally, we gather information and our limbic system, you know, like when it comes to the brain, it's all statistical and it's kind of hard to be like, oh yeah, it's exactly that, right? It, that doesn't exist in, in the brain. Um, but closed node thinking keeps it collapsed down. It doesn't allow it to actually go up into higher states and marinate around and play around. And people can tend to do that with their children. It's it's not, I don't think it's a blame game. You know, it's just, it's a product of our societies, our systems that yeah. push us, right? Our environment controls so much. Um, but just think about it. Compared to 2000 years ago, the fact that you and I, to military veterans are having a discussion about that kind of stuff is crazy. A testament yeah. that it's changing. Yeah, that's. That, I mean, that's a great point. And I mean, in fact, the fact that you and I are even sitting here together, given the the distance of, of uh, you know where we live, is is a testament. Yeah. What are the two key components for canine success? That's effective training and proper nutrition. Fueled by Team Dog brings those two components to your family and best friend. The perfect nutritional balance that results in a higher mental acuity, energy, overall vitality, and even an improved appearance. Every product you will find in my company's store was born from the battlefield and not from the boardroom. Let my life's work help you become your dog's hero. What's your favorite Canadian stereotype? I say a boot a lot. You know, I'll use it in text. <laughs> what are you talking about? Autocorrect's about? always like, yeah. no, no, it's not that. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah that's what it is. That's what I want. <laughs> um, I say a boot a lot. I think kind of like on a non-funny scale, I think a lot of Canadians are dicks and not really? as nice as people think. Yeah. Right now, Canada is so constricted down. It's unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, I have seen that. I guess, uh, you know, the, the Canadians that I do know are some of the most solid, nicest fucking people I've ever met too, though, you know, and I've oh, been there a number of times and, and always had really, really positive and, and pleasant experiences there. But uh, with the exception of your fucking border patrol, I did, I did not have good experiences with those guys, but <laughs> yeah, I got a little bit of kind of jokingly PTSD with border control yeah. anywhere. Cause my wife, Jess at the time she was American and I'm Canadian yeah. and we didn't apply for any kind of residency. So every time was like, 
it's in the hands of this person. You oh know yeah. What, I mean? like, what you, fucking mood they're in and what mood yeah. they're in. Yeah. Did they have lunch yet? You yeah. Know? I delivered a dog, uh, to a client up in Canada in the Toronto area. And, um, I purposely went way the fuck up north in Michigan to, I don't remember the border crossing, but it's one up in, in northern. Maybe northern. Sault Ste. Marie or something. Should I, you, you could mention, I probably Maybe wouldn't even care. recognize it, but it, it, it was a rural one. I, instead of going through Detroit, I went way the fuck up north to try to, it's like the DMV around here. Like the ones in Dallas, they're all dicks because it's busy and they're pissed. And, you know, you go out an hour outside of town or, or wherever and they're they're nice and there's no line. And they're like, yeah, come on in and they'll help you, you know, whatever. And so... Yeah. That was my thought process. Um, looking back on it, that was the wrong one because they're they're bored and don't have anything better to do. So, I mean, it was like a fucking prison search. I mean, they took my car half apart, uh, like separated me from the dog, and it's a protection dog, so he's, you know, not fucking happy about it, you know, popping his jaws at the fucking people there. And, I mean, they took everything out of my fucking luggage. They took the spare tire out. I mean, like they, they were taking shit apart um, you know, in, in my car to, to search things. I didn't have anything, but I, I sat, sat there for almost four hours, um, while they were dicking around and, and they put me through like four different interview stations and kept asking me the same shit, assuming I'm going to say something different or, I mean, I don't know what it was, but, uh, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Uh, I'm from the military. I'm trained not to say something different. <laughs> God. Yeah. yeah. They weren't having it, but, uh, what do you think the worst thing about America is? The worst thing about America I think like we I already alluded to that everything shows up paradoxically and under the weight of the power that it holds is that power to do good and also the power to displace, bulge, move energies in the wrong way, force, yeah. things of that nature. Um, because at the end of the day, we're humans working in human systems. And so there's flaws. Yeah. Um, yeah, ultimately, power is going to corrupt when it, when it's put in human human hands. Is is there a food in America that that you like here that uh, isn't popular or even really available in Canada? Um, so I guess something that's normal here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that like nobody eats in Canada. Oh man, nowadays it's not quite the same. Uh, where I came from in Northern Ontario. I, touch on mexican thai doesn't matter any of it wasn't available it was it was like mom and pop's diner and yeah. that was it oh god uh yeah, maybe like grill food or whatever grill yeah. food however Cajun you say it, louisiana you know like, yeah. like that kind of like flavor. etouffee and fucking yeah shit like that um yeah, yeah. So there's there's none of that in canada that's surprising as well there's like east coast west coast has it but it doesn't have the East and the West Coast don't have the same French culture built into it, so it didn't no. produce it that way. Yeah, I got you. you know, Bow boys and all that kind of yeah. stuff. Uh, what is your morning routine uh, on a normal morning where you're in town and you don't have a bunch of shit going on? Uh, well, so I kind of think of routine as the precursor to rut, um, which makes it difficult because you don't want to be making new decisions every day. So I condense it down to what I like to call principles. Uh, and I like to be able to take it with me wherever I go. Um, and then that'll be part of my routine. So and in, in that includes like no surprises, some kind of movement. Um, what time do you normally get up? I don't, Is there I don't a set, set time? An alarm. No, yeah. I don't set an alarm anymore. I've created my life to be in a position where I don't set an alarm as much as possible. Yeah. So I guess that's part of the routine. Um, but I'm usually up 
say seven o'clock. We'll call it a little left and right of that, mm-hmm. um, depending on the day before. But right away, I lay in bed before I even open my eyes. I, uh, I smile a bit, say some positive affirmations, and I set some intentions. My 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 further out intentions that I want. You know, I want to call in this. I want to call in this. I don't spend a lot of time doing it. Um, and then I'll pop open my phone, which is, you know. but what I do in it is I have some videos and sounds then when I open my eyes I play those and they help center that attention as well right because that's what we're doing we're programming our attention to be able to soak up the environment to call in what we want Uh, then I pop out like I said a little bit of movement like small small amounts I'm at a point in my life where I'm more interested in longevity yeah as opposed to holding on to bulk and things to keep me sore how much you bench yeah yeah yeah, like I had to like I my shoulders still dislocated and torn um so now I'm thinking, okay, I want to live a little bit longer. So it, it's actually harder to minimize and just do 15 push-ups. Sure, but it just get it get it moving, and in that I'll fold in some like uh, yogic or on it style movements uh, to get inverted, get uh, what uh, get fluids to like my pineal and my septum pellucida, which just help elevate joy. Um, and then I usually have a book with me, paperback. What book are you reading right now? Uh, right now I'm reading two, the physics of consciousness and consilience. Um, you read two at a time, huh? Yeah, I, I actually, I read about four at a time. Oh, shit. Uh, those are the two paperbacks. And then I listen to a couple audio books as well. Oh, okay. Um, for, for me, I, uh, I'm a one book at a time kind of guy. I call me simple minded, but I like to keep no, it. No, uh, no. Then you give it all your, all, all your attention. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, so you said you're from Northern Ontario. Correct. Yeah. Uh, well, actually, before I get into that, is there anything else you do in the morning? I didn't yeah, know. yeah, yeah. Um, I put in some kind of hot liquid. Uh, I, I don't really drink caffeine anymore. It, it really was heartbreaking. That was one of the hardest things in the world. But I didn't want to give up coffee, so I do decaf. Uh, but it really fucked with my arthritis. So um, I've had to transition away from that. But it's just some kind of um, hot liquid. And then that's about the, the core of it. So what happens is I use delta, theta, beta, alpha states of brain waves on purpose. I sh- shift between them. And then I use a, what you could kind of look at as a concentrative state, which is primarily beta, where you're really focused. And then I'll turn that off and I'll go backwards a bit into like a theta, which is more contemplative, where I meander through thoughts. Um, not all the way back to delta. Those are sleep patterns. Uh, and in that, I'm searching for what's they kind of think are what's called gamma patterns, where you have insights, where you fire neurons in a new creative pattern, or you destroy, you decide, you know, to kill a thought, um, to undo ones that don't serve me. Um, and that's what, like, like I was saying, the reason I, I avoid some routine or, or a huge routine is because like, I don't know what I really want in 20 years. And if I'm going to set a habit, like I better be sure of it. You know sure. what I, mean? I don't want to become a prisoner to it or have to like really strive to undo it. But, I, but it, again, it's, it's not like discipline's out the window. It's not like it's, sure. it's use it when I want, how I want. And then, um, and I, I try to keep it simple to be honest with you. Cause you know, you only got so many decisions in a day. So yeah. Do you, uh, I mean, would you consider that a form of meditation or meditation? If not, do you spend time, at any other point throughout the day, focusing on things internally that way? Yeah. So here I'll I'll back up and I'll expand on what I was saying about concentration, contemplation, and meditation. 
So to me, concentration is whatever you're doing where you're fully engaged, like your attention centers are pointed at that and you're using usually, you know, upper cerebral areas and really those strong beta waves. Contemplation is where you meander between like a theta and an alpha state. Okay. You kind of like draw it in, you let it sit with you, see how you feel about it. You move it back out and you let it pass on if it needs to pass on, right? So maybe you bust out the journal and um, do something like that. Uh, I, I did forget to mention I do a five-minute meditation in the morning as well. I listen to the same one. It's the bell chant. Um, I, I got really close to it during a daime ceremony, and it just helps trigger, like, really great release for me. It's only five minutes. It's super nice and chill. And that is where I try to go into, like, beyond into the theta where it's kind of you get closer to being empty if you will you know yeah. so i some people use the terms contemplation and meditation interchangeably um and in just in my point of view that's how i see them but yeah definitely um as many times as i can i'll try to even just like one big collective breath just to recenter and push out you know because the because a day, like even like right now, I've been I've been on the move traveling. We're we're filming a doc, so I came from an interview uh, in Toronto, which is not where I live, you know. So now I'm in a foreign environment. Fly down here, you know, foreign environment, you know, and it's not a big deal. I mean, I say foreign, <laughs> not, not too like much to... difference between Toronto and Dallas, but um, so it, it catches up, right? You got to you're going through the magnetron at the airport and you know, flying's pretty jarring. So yeah, I try to, to move back to that state as much as possible. Yeah. Are you into uh, any, any type of hallucinogenics or drugs of any kind? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I'd say I'm into them, um, but that's a breathy question. So uh, first off, I try to stay closer to natural mother earth grows it i'm I'm not totally anti-western medicine it's not that i just feel more comfortable there Uh, my body feels more receptive but yeah um, i'll use thc i'll use it at least once a month now to really just the way my emotional curve works i'll store stuff and it just like one hit off a pen and i'm completely able to just let all of it just flow through me there was a time where i used it a little bit more for sleeping mm-hmm. um but you know through time i moved sure. off of that and then um yeah so i've i'll i'll visit ayahuasca probably once a year um i, I do the strain daime which is it's pretty much its purest form so the vegetation mexico or you, you can get it up there um well <laughs> no comment no comment I, I usually go down to costa rica though i got you yeah i'll go down to costa rica yeah and uh yeah it's a pure form it's just leaf and vine yeah and um then i'll also um dabble with bufo but that like the, i'm not familiar with that what is that bufo alvarez it's uh, the sonoran desert toad Oh, okay. Yeah, and it's it's scraped off the toad, and then you smoke it, and it's a five meo. Okay, and it's uh, it's potent. It's yeah. potent. It's, it, it it'll rejig your your entire system. Um, but all of these, I so um, 
Jess, my former wife, she was apprenticing with a medicine woman. So we got very involved with that. And then we started bringing in systems um, to not systems like systematize, but add to it. Right. Because a lot of these medicines are pretty, um, they're practitioned in an old way. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's time to evolve. Right. Like you and I don't live in an Amazon jungle. So what works for an Amazonian in the Amazon jungle, you know, will probably help us. It will. I know it will. It's better to do it than not. But there's also other things we should do to uh, nurture its effects up front and afterwards, most importantly, to resolve and dissolve. Um, and then another one is combo. And combo is, um, it's been elusive to pharmaceutical companies. They really want the peptide from it because it's, it's pretty magical stuff. Like a uh, um, medicine woman I visit, she's cured people of Lyme disease, which Western medicine can't do. Um, just helped with like lupus and things of that nature. It's reversed cancers, you know, and it's not, it's not super surprising. I think if, if, if we look at cancer from an epigenetic lens, anyways, with that one, you burn a layer through your skin uh, down to the, uh, anyways, it's a lymphatic layer. So it helps you burn it, you rub it on and then it flows through you on the lymphatic level. And then it's like a big, time purgative it only lasts about a half an hour it's not hallucinogenic it just feels like you're getting the worst fever of your life and you know you sweat some people puke some people you know got to hit the loo from every hole the idea is all your systems of purge you know yawning crying sweating um anal glands anal glands all of it just go now you know it doesn't mean everything's going to happen to you every time or at all i i, I never puke but um, essentially you're a fucking mess after that what's that Asc yeah essentially yeah yeah but after the half an hour you feel super grounded um it really really is um, a massive down regulation tool massive um so nice and calming for the nervous system but what it does is it pushes it it's weird it feels like it's like picture yourself as a sponge and it's like squeezing out the heavy metals it's squeezing out all the toxins that you know, we can't help but getting us, you know, like through plastic bottles and stuff like that. Um, well, we, we do our best, right? But, um, and you use those in different variations. Um, most of these, like, I, I don't revisit a lot. I'm not, uh, I'm not a psycho not. I'm not there for the exploration. I'm there to get the insight and then take that and catalyze it into my life. And then, you know, I'll use it to help evolve my story. Yeah. Um, does that, that process, you said it lasts about a half hour in terms of the, the feeling of that purging after effect, about how long does that, that last? Is it months? The purging effect? Like the, the feeling of being cleansed or what, like the, the, yeah, well, so it'll vary. So what happens is, this is what I was saying about the importance of afterwards, right? If you go back, if you do it, okay. And you do uh so what'll happen is They'll, they'll do it in dots, little burn dots, and they'll do it in different places depending on your meridians and what you got going on. If you if you like tell a medicine person, you know, I really had some kidney stuff going on or whatever, they'll they'll pick their spot. Okay. Um, anyways, it, it'll it'll last it'll last a while. But like I said, if you go back to a toxic environment, yeah, it, it'll it'll the 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 onset will be diminished much quicker. Right. Um, for for you, I mean, how often are you doing that? combo combo probably twice a year, twice a year. I, I i like i'm i'm not a beacon of health but i keep my my temple pretty good so yeah. i don't have a ton of that um i also didn't have an abusive childhood so i don't got to go back and do a ton of abuses there's always wounding like it's relative 
you know, like, um, like you were saying about with your kids, it's like, we can't help but put wounds, but they're not wounds because of being abusive. I think it's part of the evolutionary process where you, the idea is you set your kids up so they have the ability to expand beyond you, right? I think that'd be the ultimate goal as a parent. Mm-hmm. Anyways, though, some people, I mean, they were sexually molested as children and then they went to, you know, drugs in high school, like in, in the worst possible ways. You know what I mean? So they got a lot more work to do. Sure. Um, yeah, no, it, and uh, not all the work is always just with medicine. So it's, there's yeah. a lot of other modalities. Lot of factors. Um, all right. So you're originally from Ontario. Uh, what was growing up like? I feel blessed. I look at, I, I, you know, you know how it is. You go around the world a few times and you can see that you uh, won the lottery and where you were born and not, yeah, no, I feel the same way. Yeah, no, there, I, I, I would feel almost audacious, like the audacity of me to, to complain about anything, you know, like, of course I could say, ah, oh, mom, you could have did this. Like to me, school was a fucking prison, you know, but it was like, it was school. I wasn't abused there. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like not a big deal. No, it was great. I, I grew up on the edge of the, the wilderness, you know, Northern Ontario, there's a part where you can just kind of walk towards the North pole and never see anyone ever again across a road, you know? Uh, and that was great. I loved being outside. I was, uh, I was a product of the 80s and 90s, you know, John J. Rambo and yeah. Arnie were <laughs> you know, the gods um, and yeah. G.I. Joe and such. So it was a big, I don't know if you remember King Saul yeah. magazine, Yeah, you know, in there getting the knives. Oh, this one does 70 things. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I need or to like take that. fucking Black Belt magazine. And uh, yeah, yeah. That's yeah it good was good. Stuff. It was, it was good. A lot of outdoor stuff, a lot yeah. of um, opportunity. My parents were really good about putting my boundaries far away. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there's lessons learned in a hard way with that, but there's also, you know, you, you learn to explore the world. You're not coddled. You're not scared of it, right? Yeah. Um, you, you learn to deal with the unknown a little bit sooner. Not that it ever stops being difficult. That's why it's the unknown, you know. Um, but you gain gain some tools. I gained a lot of tools. I loved yeah. it out there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, siblings. Yeah, yeah. I have a, an older sister by about uh, I think it's 15 years. Oh wow. Yeah, and then a younger sister, we're, we're, we're Irish twins, you know, she's yeah. pretty much just that year younger, yeah. But that that's it, no brothers, um, spent what? a lot of time around women. Yeah, My dad worked out of town for a good chunk of my life. And What did he do? Well, at that time, he owned a uh, plumbing and heating company, oh, so okay. big scale commercial contracting. Yeah. Um, made for a good life, but, you know. I never really felt like he was away that much because when he was around, he, he would make a good quality time. Um, yeah, I had a lot of female influence, which helped Did, me out and also set me up for success in high school. Yeah. <laughs> what do you mean? Uh, did, um, did your mom work or was she a stay-at-home mom? So she was working then I was born and um, they came to an agreement that she'd be a stay-at-home mom, which... I think is priceless. That's just me. Like, um, yeah, I agree. I, I think it's literally the most important job there is. Um, especially because my experience with it was really, really great. Uh, and I wouldn't want someone to not have to go through that. So, but anyways, she did a bunch of other stuff. She uh, volunteered. We were really big into like snowmobiling. So she was a, a governor of the Ontario Federation of Snowmobile Clubs and stuff like that. Oh, shit. Yeah, she dabbled on the outside like that. I noticed she called it snowmobiling and not snow machining. You guys call them snowmobiles up there or machines? 
to me it's it's fucking weird a snow machine is a machine that makes snow yeah like at, at ski resorts you know yeah like, i would say sled is probably yeah sled ski do i mean northern ontario is pretty french so you got a lot of ski do you know yeah. like uh i mean ski do's down here are fucking jet skis jet skis yeah yeah yeah, but, yeah. yeah. yeah not too many uh Texas gets some snow in some places, yeah, but nothing not, really. Not really. I mean, not enough to, I don't think that you would find a, a snowmobile in, in the state other than driving through on the way to somewhere else maybe. But Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, <clears throat> did you play any sports growing up or, or do any hunting? Uh, I did hunt, yep. I could just leave out the back door and go bird hunting and stuff like that. Any big game shit? No. No, I didn't. Uh, I've never gotten into big game. I do have this like urge to but it's not really from what i think is the right place i just want to get the longest long range kill on a big game yeah like i would eat the meat and i'd honor it you know but i know i don't know if like anyone else you've chatted with has come across this but like after you leave the military for me hunting changed and it no, I, I I could give a shit. I don't like hunting, honestly. I mean, a, a lot of guys, which I would say I'm more abnormal that way. Most um, most guys that I I worked with or know or or you know run around with, uh, associate with, etc., are are pretty big into hunting, especially bow hunting. Which to me, there, there's a, a whole different element of that which I can respect and and tip my cap to for sure. As far as the discipline, dedication, skill level. Um, you know, will, will to endure it, you know, things of that nature that, that it, it takes to be a successful bow hunter. And I respect the shit out of all of that. For me, it's just very simply, it, it does nothing for me enjoyment wise. Yeah. Um, and I have enough other things going on to where it's like, if I'm going to carve time out of my already busy schedule, it's going to be for shit that, that I enjoy the most and hunting, isn't it? Uh, you know, um, yeah. now if, if some catastrophic event happened where my family was dependent on, on me to provide meat, then yeah, I would be a hunting motherfucker, you know? Um, but right now when I can, you know, order really good meat through the, through the mail, <laughs> through, uh, you know, really good steak purees or go to the fucking grocery store, I'm going to always prefer that and then do shit that really blows my hair back that I don't have. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I so. you, know, you know, some people might roll their eyes here as far as purity game meat's great, but as far as taste goes, it doesn't float my boat that much. Yeah. Yeah. And then as far as sports, uh, I, I didn't really play too many team sports, a little bit of baseball. Um, but I was mostly into snowboarding. No fucking ice hockey up there. huh? Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. I, I, you have true. to play. I had a pond actually like a, my dad made us a rink and yeah. I played a lot of hockey. I played, I just never played organized. Right. So where I lived, everything was like 45 minutes away at least to get to. So, um, it was, uh, you know, it wasn't something that I pursued. Right. How, uh, how big a town did you grow up in? Well, I grew up on a road. Oh, okay. So, um, <laughs> you know, there was a few hundred people Yeah. probably uh, through the stretch of the 40 kilometers that the road was. So where would you say you were from? I would say I'm from Vermilion Lake. That's kind of where I grew up. Um, but the closest city would be Sudbury. Ontario. Okay. Yeah. Uh, do you go back there at all? Um, yeah, no, and then my dad's there. So, okay. uh, I go see him and then yeah. uh, I got a cottage on Manitoulin Island, which is, uh, the world's largest freshwater Island on Lake Huron or in Lake Huron. Um, and I spend quite a bit of time there. I noticed that's one thing, uh, the client that I have up there calls it a cottage. Like most people call them cottages, whereas in America they would call them cabins. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, I, I think the distinction is cabins, more cabiny, and then cottages. Like a house on a Or lake. like a house, like a second house. I yeah. think that's how it would be used. Yeah, um, okay. Yeah. Um, all right, so the, the big burning question I have uh, amongst all of them, but especially as it relates to why you're here, is what was the, the moment uh, that you thought, you know what, I'm going to join the fucking military, and what drove that? Genesis of something's an interesting thing to follow, right? Um, I always had warrior blood in me. I was born with it. And, you know, all the games I played, everything was about nurturing that in some aspect. And it would come and go, right? It wasn't always there. And then I, uh, I was like, okay, I'll go through high school, which I didn't graduate. And then I went to college, which I didn't graduate. <laughs> Do that. And then I like, okay, I'll, I'll become a pilot, and I'll, uh, which I did finish, but I never went that way. But I was like, I was kind of just like buying some time. It was just a weird thing. You know, I was like, I know I'm going to go there. So get into my 20s. And then um, I actually was signing up to be in the mili- uh, American military. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, because Canada had this like peacekeeper vibe. That's what they were trying to go for at the time. Um, and then, um, um paperwork was in it was going through i had started like the intake and uh, then 9-11 happened and i was in class <clears> and i remember watching and all that and i was like okay well you know got to get this going now american military stopped taking foreign nationals at the time they cut off that program whatever it's called um and i was still like fuck i don't want to be in the canadian military just yet anyways um Things like enduring freedom and all that started happening and it was like oh shit you know these guys are they're at war and they're fighting you know excellent and um a couple years went by i had to take care of my dad ended up uh getting sick and i had to take care of some stuff for him, his business so i put it on hiatus for a couple years and then he got better he was able to take care of his stuff again and then i enlisted in the infantry and it must have been about uh, 24 by this point a little bit later in the game and uh yeah went into the infantry went into the airborne um felt pretty lucky my progression was um, pretty quick so for us uh, there's only one company per regiment that has jump capability um, and i went right into that so that was really great and then we did what was called uh, the airborne indoc course so that might not make sense to too many americans but there was a regiment called the airborne regiment in canada and that was kind of its special forces um, and then some stuff happened in africa and they were disbanded um and stuff then, happened like they fucked up or well the jury's out <laughs> you know yeah. um but yeah it, it had a reputation of being really cowboyish right. it was really you know you give a dog a lot of lead um it's gonna you know either hang itself or and anyways in this case it appeared that they hung themselves and um that transitioned into joint task force two like it was just kind of this weird timing that got closed down our rcmp which is the mounted police which is similar to your fbi um they their counterterrorism unit they didn't want to hold on to it anymore they weren't really doing much with it and they handed over to the military and the military took it and called it joint task force two gtf2 and that became our tier one operator operations but that all happened around the 90s but it just sat kind of quietly like it was you know it did work in bosnia and 
all around, but it nobody really knew about it. So I didn't know that we even had an SF. That was the biggest reason. That was the driver for wanting to go to the U.S. I, I wanted to go to the SF. And uh, yeah, anyways, that popped up on the radar. I was in the recruiters, and she was like, "Oh yeah, yeah," and closed the door like it was a big secret, you know. And it's like, "Oh yeah, okay, that's where I'm going." And anyways, went in, went into the airborne, the airborne indoc. That's what I was saying. It was the course they ran, and just luckily we had an old dog left, and he wanted to run it, and we ran it. It was basically just jumping and humping and sleeping in the snow, and it was terrible and awful and amazing all at one time, you know what I mean? But it was sure. great because it hardened me up to get me ready for selection and so on. Yeah. yeah. Uh, is there a Joint Task Force 1, or is it just JTF 2? <laughs> well, so the way it works, like there's always Joint Task Force, right? Every multi, any... You know, multidisciplinary unit that gets together, um, they call it a joint task force. And that was the idea. It was supposed to be um, clever. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, so it just looked yeah. like this, like, ambiguous thing. So technically, no, there's no JTF-1. Yeah. Um, so it's like the checkbook that starts at uh, check 105, so it doesn't look like it's the first check you've ever written. Exactly. Exactly. Um, it's all an illusion. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so once you got into that unit, did you go, uh, did, do they have an in-house sniper school that you went through fairly early on or how did the, uh, the sniper progression work? So no, not really, not, not super, like not right into the sniper program. Um, I was doing other stuff, breacher, we call it an MOE method of entry, but yeah, breacher, um, jump master stuff, you know, free fall, that kind of stuff. Um, and then a couple years in, you know, the old ticker doesn't work so good. I can't even remember how many years in I did the course and the way it works with us is you do the course and then they, we have a separate sniper unit and we're really the only, I think the only, certainly only tier one operation that does it. But most of them, their snipers are embedded within their squadrons or their teams and stuff like that. Where us, we have a separate sniper house, oh, okay. unit, um, which has pros and cons. They're able to develop long-range shooting at a pace much, much quicker because they're not, you know, embedded here and not, not at the mercy as if they're they're sacrificing something, but you know, yeah. at, uh, of like the squadrons. Um, so it was a couple of years, and then a. Um, ended out the last little bit of my career at the sniper troop. Um, but it was great. The course is amazing. It's, uh, it's crazy how long range shooting has developed. About how many snipers are there, uh, within Kansoff? Do you know? Mm, within Kansoff. So there's another unit called CSOR, Canadian Special Operations Regiment, and they have snipers as well. And I, I couldn't even give you a, a guess and where it's at right now, Mike, I've just been so like finger off the pulse that I would be making up a number. Um, and then there's sniper qualified. Right. So it's like so, ranger school versus ranger battalion guy. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So um, I, I, I couldn't even give you a really, yeah. I'd just be making up a number. Is Do you know ballpark between CSOR and CANSOF? Uh, like all, all the Canadian special forces troops across the board, about how many there are? Yeah, so numbers when it comes to, especially for JTF2, are pretty close hold, um, as you can imagine. Yeah. Um, I would say, again, I, I don't know, but I, if I was to guess, I would put it somewhere around maybe 
600. Yeah. So the way it works, CanSoft is the entire unit. Um, think like a, like a JSOC kind of. And then there's JTF2 and then there's Seesaw that's uh, the tier two unit, if you will. Um, and then there's like the helicopter squadron and then there's C-Gyru, which is our kind of biological nuclear response team yeah. in that. Um, and they have what are considered operators, but be honest most people don't really consider them operators right you know sorry guys I, yeah. I'm, I'm not trying to be a dick. sorry <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly well, yeah i got you um all right so a little a little ways in had you done any uh had you accomplished or or uh, i guess uh finished any deployments prior to going to sniper school uh, with jtf2 yeah 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 um, um in the regular army uh, i went to afghanistan and I had, hands down, the best tour ever. And then uh, I deployed to Iraq as well uh, before heading there. This deployment with uh, infantry to uh, Afghanistan, you said, was uh, you know basically a wet dream of a deployment. Can you uh, talk about it? Yeah, yeah. Um, it. Uh, I just started actually revisiting some of it, um, which is kind of interesting that I. When I left the military, I, I don't know what I did, but I just pushed it behind me. Um, yeah, we arrived in 08. So it's it's getting on, but like it was still, it was, uh, it, it turned out it was the most deadly Canadian tour there was. Really? Um, that, yeah, that's when we had the most casualties. Most people go home um, and repatriated. Uh, yeah, so we got there. We arrived in Kandahar and you know how it is. It's it's kind of it's an interesting place we'll call it and uh, we spent one night in calf loaded up um, so we were light infantry meets mechanized so we had the labs i think you guys call them strikers and uh, we rolled out to Massamgar. so this is kind of northwest of kandahar city right along the argandab river right in the uh, spiritual birthplace of the taliban and we go and we spend one night, you know, and it's all, it's not too bad, right? You're kind of a little bit culture shocked, soaking up everything that's going on. And um, right on the drive, just like to show the intricacy of what was going on there. Cause it was hard to tell, right? It's hard to tell who's who in the zoo. And um, one of the guys is one of the guys driving the lab seen this thing going on and it's a construction site. So they're building highway one across Afghanistan. And the idea of highway one is to make it bomb proof, right? It's all cement. And so no, they can't dig in IEDs. The construction crew was actually digging in an IED kind of thought like, okay, that's suspicious. Anyways, we, we get to Fab Masamgar and we report it, go back. And it was the biggest IED that area that they'd ever tried to put in it was massive massive amounts of hme and it was like okay this is what it's going to be like you know starting to get that feel the next day we are set to put uh, our platoons in combat outputs out sorry combat outposts they're just like small little tiny not even, you know like a bit of esco and <laughs> you know fucking pipe to piss in and we get in the riverbed and we're driving up the riverbed and a couple hundred meters up 
first RPG comes in, hits one of the labs, no damage. We had the cages, uh, didn't really do much. And then mortars start coming in. It's like, oh, okay, this is, this is what we're here for. Right. Um, and then we just start going to work and it was awesome. Um, it was really kind of neat, right? Like the first time you kill someone, you know, or see someone be killed is it's the first time. Right. So it's like, Oh, okay, here we go. Um, and it was a mortar team. One of the labs just strafed it. And um, just kind of sets the tone, right? And for eight hours that day, we drove up the river and, you know, there was multiple. Because what happened is a lot of time had passed. The, the companies, the Canadian companies that were in that AO had kind of let it go. They weren't pushing past a certain easting. So they had all kinds of time to dig stuff in, get things ready, you know. So it was like multiple IED strikes and um, bombs coming in, you know, JDAMs. You know, I don't know if you remember the first time one went off close to you, but that. Yeah, I mean, shit, you'll never. I mean, each each one of those experiences are ones that you'll never, never forget, you know. Yeah, you don't get to undo it. Yeah. Um, luckily, and you'll see as I go on why I, I, I feel very fortunate in it, too. So we're going, and it's that kind of day, all day, all day. Then we get into our outpost, and then mortar comes in, comes through the sea can, um, which uh, I think had a TV in it. Um, no one was in it, luckily. And, you know, super quick high-five, handover kind of thing, you know, because next guys are getting out of there, light of day is going. And it, it, was, it, was, it was awesome because um, it sucks not knowing. It sucks waiting to ask that question. How am I going to hold up in combat? You know, what am I going to do? What's it going to be like? And um, in most ways, it's not too bad until shit gets bad, right? Things right. aren't a problem until they're a problem. Anyhow, we're at, uh, now we're in an area called Zangabad. And that's like right in the hub of um, where they had time to grow now because they weren't really... I don't know how it was with you guys at any point, but sometimes near the end of tours, pressure would be relieved a bit, you know, because it's like, okay, we're getting close to going home. We don't want to send anyone. We don't want anyone on the news, you know. Um, but it, it was awesome. We started making a dent, you know. We, we were, uh, it was stacking up. It was, it was amazing because we had some close calls. Um, actually, the first firefight we got into there in the outpost uh, this skinny little guy king you know like one of those voices a little <laughs> dork uh he was a good troop though um he's up in kind of like the little makeshift tower and he's running i don't know what you guys call it um it's an fn gun it's it's we call it a c6 it's a 7.62 a scar maybe no it's bigger than a scar it's uh it looks like more old school it's really chunky it's 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 a great machine gun. I mean, is it an, an area weapon or? Yeah, it's an area weapon. Yeah. I mean, so we use these are the, I mean, like m most of what we used when I was in was the M60. Uh, now it's the uh, the Mark 48, but. Yeah, so it's it's similar to an M60, except it's a little bit more chunky. I gotcha. It's a heavier lady. Yeah. Um, it's, it gives it a nice, really tight grouping, but it's still an area weapon. Like it's, like most machine guns, it's got its built-in cone, right? Yeah. Um, anyways, he's shooting that. He gets shot through that. It goes back, you know, and now, okay, now we're at this new level, right? It's the first time we got someone get shot. And we vacuum down and I'm helping the doc work on him. And 
and we're patching up his wound and stuff and kind of like looking at him like this is it too you know what i mean like every time the cherries popped yeah um it's like okay got that got that okay now i know how i handle it but then i stepped outside of where we were working on that and we had some artillery coming in uh, um set to airburst and uh you know the walls were maybe 10 feet tall or something and a fucking piece of a bomb comes in um comes across hits the ground like i'm just like in a position just you know and you're just in a position to soak it up <laughs> hits the ground right beside my head stuck in the thing big old chunk of fucking shrapnel oh and i was like oh okay you know you got to be careful out here yeah uh, obviously i, I kind of joke a little but shit's real and it happens quick and it doesn't even have to be from the other yeah. side right because yeah. they're running a multi-pronged attack on us right now coordinated you know rpgs whatever the 80 mil they were using there the fucking i can't remember it, uh, the russian gun do you know about how many of them there were in this one yeah uh well if i recall when we did the bda there was about i think 10 of them yeah that were left behind um, and then some of them you know you let them kind of scurry right track them and then like the pred will take care of them or artillery and or um you know you let your guys um go get them you know what i mean like you, you're yeah. building up your in package right um yeah but it, it's it's hard to tell sometimes it's not always yeah easy to soak up that data right um in real time because uh, we didn't have eyes in the sky we very seldom did out there it was just us um and anyhow go back to work go back up start doing the thing you know that lasts a few hours that kind of thing you know right. before you deal with everything that's got to be dealt with and, and it was kind of a weird time mike because we weren't sure if we were going to keep this outpost going mm. um, because there was a big shift happening um, there was going to be a, a big influx of americans coming in um, and the governments didn't really know how they wanted to handle that Anyhow, Zangabad, that's, that's, that's what it was, you know, and this happened more times, more times, and it was uh, a great intro into combat yeah. for me. It, uh, but we were lucky, like even the guy who got shot, uh, most of his flak vest got pressed into him, um, but he, he was able to come back to the theater, you know. Right. Um, so again, my whole point being, you know, things are good till they're not good, and for our platoon, things were always really good. We, we uh, started... <clears throat> you know racking up a really big uh, score yeah and what was happening was is we were taking out their teams right their gun teams their mortar teams and they don't have the ability to replenish stuff very quickly <clears throat> and when they do you know get new guys in you could tell because the bombs are fucking you know, fucking everywhere yeah, yeah they're 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 highly ineffective can't, you can tell the new guys at the helm yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, when you guys first got there, two two questions, I guess. Um, the overall kind of morale and, and motivation or feeling that that your platoon had there, how, how would you kind of characterize that as far as belief in the mission, um, desire to want to be there? I know 08 was still close enough to, to 01 to where, at least on the American side, people, you know, guys were still pretty fucking fired up to, to go there and quote unquote, fight the good fight. I'm, I'm curious from the Canadian side, was that the case? And also going there, were you guys told specifically what your mission set was? And, and if so, what was that? Yeah. So 
longer war goes on, the more people see the reality of what war actually is, um, especially in anything that's a sustained war. Um, so yes, that's, that becomes obvious, but you know, you're also, in my case, a young man who thinks that this is, this is what service is at the time, right? And our platoon, Lucky 1-3, um, we had super high morale for going to do, like you said, that good fight. Um, as far as our mission, our mission is to provide security. It's to train, you know, not that we train, but like as far as the Canadian mission, to handle ANA, um, whatever the police, PNA or whatever they were. Um, so that's, you know, you kind of buy that, you know, you start, you look at the stats. Oh, more schools are opening. Oh, women are going to school. Okay, that's great. Oh, the Afghani, their, their currency is going up, you know. So you're like, okay, yeah, this is, this is good, right? On the ground, though, it quickly becomes evident that not everybody you're fighting is part of the Taliban or the Al-Qaeda. Mm-hmm. It's just not. It's people who are starting to reject this presence of a foreign military there, right? Um, and it's hard to um, it's hard to resolve that, right? Because you know now you're in the zone, right? I, I don't know what your experience is, but like for me, when you're there, you're there, right? That's that's where you got to be. Yeah, I mean, at that point, it doesn't fucking matter. It doesn't you know? matter. Yeah. I can't go home anyways. Yeah. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? Um, so I, I'm there. And then, um, but yeah, you know, we, we continue doing good things. I think there was good things done. You know, I, I really do. The, the issue is, is now when I revisit it, I just don't know if fighting fear with fear is going to solve an issue, you know? Mm-hmm. Like now we're kind of, I don't know, I don't really follow too much of what's going on, but it seems like they're back to where they were in some ways, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I would say largely, they're largely back to where they were before we ever showed up, you know? And, and hopefully some seeds were planted in the younger generation of like, yeah. you know, okay, there's what's possible, what's possible, you know? Yeah. Cause there, there was just way too much sacrifice not to have agreed. That going yeah. On. yeah I, I had a really good conversation with a, uh, an American sniper here just, uh, two days ago. Um, he was a, an army sniper that was attached to a lot of soft unit seals and, and some ODA guys and what have you. And, and we talked a little bit about that and, and my take on war or, or just, you know, com- combative conflict geopolitically is that there has to be a tangible outcome that you can wrap your arms around. Like fr- from a, if you think of it like a completed puzzle, Right. If you look at World War II, it's very, very easy to grasp what Germany and Japan, Italy, even Russia for that matter, sort of, I guess you can leave them out because they they were kind of in a, in a weird, weird spot as far as what side they were on and where they're at now. But, but the two biggest foes, you know, easily are the biggest three, you know, Japan, Germany, Italy. If you look at where they were in 1939 and look at where they're at now, it's very easy to see the impact that World War II had on those cultures and societies and, and how it benefited us and how, you know, what we did is a very tangible outcome that you can say, okay, yes, here's the completed puzzle. All of these different pieces that we contribute to complete it makes sense. In Iraq and Afghanistan's case, you can't say that. Like you look at what both of those places are doing now and you look at the sacrifice that entire 
uh, organization of NATO, uh, you know, has contributed in, in money, in resources, in human beings. And it's like, what was the fucking point, you know? And so to me, that that's a hard thing to reconcile, I think, for a lot of veterans of, of those, um, you know, conflicts. But I think, you know, one of the things that I said to him was that I, I don't really look at it, at least, you know, from a service and vein standpoint of regretting it or, or anything like that. It's that all of us, you know, were young men that wanted to to prove something to ourselves, to our families, to our countries, and, and ultimately serve something that we thought, uh, you know, was the, the greater good. And, and ultimately, you know, it, it's up to our, our elected officials to decide uh, how best to use volunteers such as ourselves that's out of our hands. You know, all we can do is either volunteer and do the best to, uh, of our abilities with, with what we have or not, you know, and, and to me, there's, there's something honorable and valiant in, in doing that irrespective of how the people who uh, are making the calls decide to use you, you know, that that's on them, whether or not they used you correctly or not. That's because we need to pick where the equal sign is. Yeah. So if we zoom out on it, if those officials are making decisions to, you know, move economy, make economy, you know, is that a good move or is that a good, bad move? You know, in, in the scheme of morals, you yeah. know, it sits one place. And then in the scheme of human evolution, it sits in one place, you know, because it definitely did that. It moved markets, you know, it stabilized and destabilized just like it seems they like to do, you mm-hmm. know, but does that benefit? Like, you know, you and I sit in, Right now we're in literally the richest country in the world. You know what I mean? And did it benefit that or not? You know, and if it did, it's like, what's the outcome of that? What is, like we were talking about, you asked about America's, what I dislike about it the most. You know, it, it has that ability to move that, you know, and the hope is that through all those things, people continue to be educated here more and more and more and more aware of what's going on themselves and with yeah. others and those you know in the scheme of the dominoes falling are those beneficial movements you know like because yeah. now you know there was a lot of pressure when when trump was in with iran there for a while mm-hmm. you know and i thought wow not pushing that more that that was a big sign to the world in my opinion it's like, well, okay, we don't, we don't want to do that. You know, what's, what's the new, what's, what, what new can we do? You know, and I don't know what that is, you know, cause American politics is American politics. And, um, that's not really my, my, my place to say too much. Um, nor do I really know a ton about it. You know, it's, it's a complex beast. So in the grand scheme of measuring things, I, I think, yes, it was really good. Yeah. But if we look into like that microcosm of like the borders of Afghanistan in some ways, maybe not so good. And I would argue that Kurdistan in Iraq uh, is in a much better place. As long as I don't know what's going to happen there, you know, like if there's like a, like a pullout, like a full on, will the Iraqis want to claw back their oil fields uh, potentially, you know, and that could cause some destabilization. But I would imagine that they, they would argue that they're in a better place now, not under the... Yeah. I, I think in both cases, it's at least... It's just my opinion. I'm sure I'll get plenty of comments of people telling me I don't know what I'm fucking talking about. But, 
uh, which that happens no matter what I say, but um, that it's at least more in, in their hands. You know, it's, there's still a lot of corruption and, and tyrannical components to, to both countries of, of different factions that are doing things and, and what have you, but, but not nearly to the extent that they were before we were there. It's just when you look at, at the devastation that, that both countries sustained from our being there and fighting those forces there, a lot of fucking people paid the ultimate price and subsequently uh, maybe not quite as severe as losing their lives, but you know, severely altered the trajectory of their lives by, by us being there, you know? So, well, you know, when Zeus created Pandora's box and it was opened up, fear and hate and wrath, everything escaped. And the last thing that was in there was hope. And that's what I mean about those seeds that could have been planted in those young men and women mm-hmm. of hope that something can be better. Like you said, it has to be in their hands. It has to because we're not Iraq, Iraqis or Afghans. You know, we, we will never be them. Um, so to dictate exactly what they should be is, it's kind of hubris, right? Yeah. But them having the belief that they can actually dictate what they should be. Um, how do you even measure that really? You know, like, yeah, I mean, you really can. I guess, you know, my example with World War II is, is it's a lot more black and white and clear cut what we got for our money, so to speak, uh, in, in those uh, wars, you know, uh, or areas of operation and, and that it's it's very very clear cut and easy to say yeah this is this was the end of the equation and it's it's easy to kind of wrap your arms around but uh, i would like to take a real quick break and talk to you about uh, my bookie i want you to uh, go to mybookie.com and use my promo code mic drop uh, which you'll instantly get a deposit bonus up to one thousand dollars remember to use my code mic drop and bet with me only at my bookie Primarily, the only way watching these fights could get any better is to get paid doing it, and my bookie makes that a possibility. Bet anything, anytime, anywhere with my bookie. All right, I want to talk about a product that is uh, near and dear to my heart. It's Bub's Naturals. Glenn Doherty was uh, one of my closest friends. Was tragically killed in Benghazi um, back during that uh, incursion. Uh, two good friends of his, uh, Sean and, and TJ, came together and wanted to design a, a brand around Glenn that both supports the Glenn Doherty Memorial Foundation, which it does very well, as well as put out a really good product for collagen protein and MCT oil powder. Uh, so they, they came up with Bub's Naturals. It's a brand that I've taken for years. I stand behind a thousand percent, and it's a product that I'm very, very proud and honored to have as a sponsor of this podcast because of where it comes from, who it benefits, and ultimately uh, has the name of, of, you know, one of the best men I've ever had the pleasure of, of knowing and operating with. Um, the college protein, I, I will say, is the best collagen on the planet. It's better than everything else. Uh, it's unflavored. Uh, it's very soluble, and, and it is better than any other product. Uh, per serving, it's 20 grams of protein, seven essential amino acids, and it's one single ingredient, which is collagen. Uh, it is essential for joint health, muscle recovery, gut health, and more. It is 100% NSF, 4-sport certified. It's Whole30 approved, sustainably sourced. Collagen protein really is the key to performance and keeping your joints healthy. Uh, you can train better, longer, and smarter with it. It is the purest form of collagen. 
Uh, again, it's sustainably sourced from grass-fed and pasture-raised cows in southern Brazil. It's keto and paleo diet approved, heat tolerant, and you can put it in anything. Uh, the MCT oil powder, uh, you know, it's it's amazing for coffee creamer. Uh, it's vegan and keto friendly. Uh, it's great for mental focus and energy and just good healthy fat. Uh, and Bubs is the only MCT in the world that is Whole30 approved. If you go to BubsNaturals.com and use the promo code MICDROP, all one word, all caps, for 20% off. That's 20%. That's one-fifth for you math majors. Again, I, I cannot stress enough um, how honored I am to have Bubs Naturals as a sponsor of the Mic Drop podcast. Uh, Glenn was was an amazing human being, and the two gentlemen, Sean and TJ, that uh, you know have, have taken up his um, you know name in, in honor of, of what he did and brought to this planet uh, in, in bringing that same level of of uh, you know just an amazing human being to to their product is something that uh, I'll be forever grateful for. So go to uh, bubsnaturals.com, use the promo code MikeDrop for 20% off. Um, going back to that that deployment, are there a couple of operations that either went really, really sketchy or, or went really, really well that you can share kind of a, a no-shit-there-we-were standpoint? Yeah. Um, the first one would be what would be my, said the wet dream or the storybook version of combat um we went out we were we were mostly moving around on foot so that's how we kind of patrolled our ao we, we we had the mechanized tools but you're such a big target you know yeah you got powerful guns and all kinds of tech and stuff like that but you're just such a big target right so we were humping around and it was a it was balls you know, going through grape rows, like against the grain and like, you know, like yeah. with rocks. And, um, I was part of the heavy weapons debt. So we had, uh, we had a long gun and a machine gun and on some ops we were carrying a fucking mortar, you know, uh, a bit. can you say about how many of their, you guys were, uh, I, our platoon was about 25, 26. So it was a group of just 25, you one platoon there. And that yeah, area. well, sorry. No, that's, that's, that's not accurate. Uh, our entire company went out. Okay. We, we, we marched. It was about 15 kilometers, like 15 kilometers with a rucksack <laughs> yeah. to go do a raid. So there were, we had Intel on a target site. Um, and you know how Intel can go. Uh, we show up nighttime. We go, um, we do it. It's called a raid. That's what it's called in the infantry, you know, and, uh, nothing, there's nothing there. We're like, what the fuck, you know, this is supposed to be, this is it. So we set up uh, to do just some presence patrols in this area that we hadn't been in. And by 10 in the morning, uh, actually we were with some Americans then too. Uh, we were with some uh, uh, a handlers. That's what they were. They were working, uh, they were cowboy cow sign. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, snap, snap, snap. Uh, and you know starts going off and once again they're doing this multi-prong approach um and it's tricky because we're kind of in open-ish ground and they're kind of like you know fairly big fields not huge you know like <coughs> half a kilometer in total radius but they're in the village all around right so they're they're hard to pick up and anyways we just start throwing everything at it bam 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 um, and of course it's a good time, right? Cause you're, 
doing the business, but it, you know, there's a point to this next thing I'm going to say, but fatigue starts setting in and, uh, it continued on like that, like for three days, like nonstop, nonstop, you know, it would, it would kind of quieten the, the, the afternoon. Um, and then on the second day, um, one of the American dudes got shot and it was just like a really super beautiful moment where this British Chinook flies in. So Canadian dudes carrying, you know, doing the med on the American dude, carrying him on the stretcher running, you know, fucking bombs and bullets going off and a Chinook comes in, you know, kind of into the zone, you know, like the fucking, and it's not a small target, load him up. Um, he goes back, um, you know, the surgeons are so world-class, you know, they're, it's crazy what they could button up. Got shot in the hip right near the femoral. Um, anyways, managed to save him, but it was like really just a cool like moment of allied operation. You know what I mean? Imagine what uh, the revolutionary war fighters uh, would have thought, <laughs> you know, that couple hundred years later that, uh, that those three forces are now working together halfway across the world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, it's funny how that happens, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But that's, that's like what you're saying. You just don't know what the cause and effect of like a tea party is. Yeah. Right. Sure. You don't know. Yeah. Um, during that, that three day sustained conflict, uh, you said there's an entire company about how many guys uh, are in a company then? I, th- I think with the, uh, with the Americans in the ANA, we were probably about a hundred spread out though. Like, yeah. uh, we were kind of had a, um, maybe throughout a mile, we'll okay. call it, you know, give a, so the, the goal was to, to do a raid on a specific target, um, with humping in it just in trying to understand, I guess the, uh, course of action, um, was the plan to, to hunt that 15 kilometers in hit the target and then extract via helo out or. Yeah. So I think the plan would have been, uh, the original plan would have been to march across the, the Argandab plane or plane. I, I, I hate calling it a river cause I've never seen water in it. But. Yeah. Valley. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. River the valley. valley. And then go north and then be um, heloed out. And the, anyways, the plan changed. They're like, okay, we're going to do uh, presence patrols here because we haven't been here. And so the idea of a presence patrol, you know, pretty simple. I'm sure people have said it before, but the idea is that you're present. So they're not able to, um, you know, make drugs. They're not able to move weapons the same way, all that kind of stuff. Right? And it makes sense. Um, we did find a few little drug ops, you know, we blew those up. Um, but yeah. We were lucky because usually when the plan changes from some bright idea above, that's when things can go pretty wrong, right? Mm-hmm. When you have a really good grip of the plan and you can control as much as you can, it, it usually goes better for you, right? Um, so we were pretty fortunate, I think, all in all, because, like I said, this was, this was three days. And then at the end, you know, we're, now we're down. They know where we are. They've been watching us. You know, we, we've been given the good news or whatever you want to call it doing what we're supposed to do, but now they know, and now we got to get out of there and it's, it's too hot now to be, uh, active evac by helo. But then we call in artillery smoke and I'd never seen smoke like this. It was like a, a blanket that was kilometers long. I didn't even know they could do that. Um, and then we marched out and then on the way there was, you know, as we were extracting, there was a bunch of different little things that we hit. Um, 
along the way, little small targets. And then there was always, once they know you're on the move, it's easy for them to start coordinating stuff. You know, it, it's mostly just kind of pot shots and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, you know, and we had some airstrike calling and all that kind of stuff, you know, but it was like really like if, you know, you stand back, no one died. Um, we definitely did what was asked of us. You know, sometimes you wonder, did you just stir the hornet's nest more or whatnot? Um, but I mentioned it earlier about the fatigue. Um, like for myself, you know, you're not really sleeping. Right? <clears throat> we're, we're living out of our rucks, right? Most of the guys didn't even bring sleeping bags. And um, the, the weather turned, it was crazy. We we're sleeping on the grape rows. And then at night it would kind of snow, like a hail, more of a hail. And then you know, desert temperatures in the day. So you're getting huge, you know, so it, it's adding up and then, uh, get back and I hop on a call with my wife at the time. And, um, that was the call when I, when she'd lost her baby, mm. she, I don't want to put the blame on her. Um, and it was fatigue is, 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 is a mind killer, right? You're not getting into REM sleep and stuff like that. You're not filtering this stuff. It's not moving through. You're not processing it. Um, and, you know, none of it's, like, too big of a deal. But, you know, you start seeing corpses wheelbarrowed around, you know, and you get pretty irreverent with it and stuff like that. Uh, but now we're getting closer to the end of the tour, and you, you, you're wondering more, you know. Like, like this is a nine-month tour, you know. Some of them are, it's a long time. Am I going home? What not? You know, yeah. all that kind of jazz. Um, so it was a doozy, and that's what I was saying about it's only now I'm kind of revisiting these things mm -hmm. um, to make sense of them. And then on the other side, I don't know if this is like a, it went wrong or right. You know, I, I could, I could, I could give examples of what I think commanding officers, a few ranks up, decisions they made. I think were stupid, um, but I, I won't do that. I'll, I'll do one that I I was a part of a little bit more. You know, because then I realistically could have said something or done something different. I don't know. And it, and it's it's not like a, a super big deal, but it it has a place in my, like, okay, was that handled the best? And, and some of it's on my, anyways, we're in the labs. I remember the old ICOM radio. Um, our interpreter, our Tajiman, uh, I noticed he was keying it in. So what he was doing, he was sending what we were saying back to whoever, right? Uh, where they're just supposed to listen to it. And I noticed that and I was like, okay, maybe that's just like, you know, I'm noticing things watch a bit more and it happens again. And I'm like, Hey man, like watch this, you know, like, check this out. Uh, anyways, then the platoon commander gets involved and it turns out he's been, you know, in essence spying on us, you know, given whatever you want to call them at this point, feeding uh, info to feeding info, you know, every move we're making, cause we're in the command, uh, lab at this case, uh, in this point. And, um, so anyways, the MPs, the military police take them, you know, and do their thing and inter you know, interrogate them and stuff like that. And then they just kind of kick them out of the combat outpost. And um, he didn't get very far. He was nabbed by whoever was handling him. Turns out, though, this guy's family was kidnapped by, we'll call oh, it the fuck. Taliban. And they were using that as leverage to make him do this. Wow. He goes out and they hang him and they hang him in a grape hut. Fuck, man. So it's like... I, I didn't, I didn't make that choice, I, but I, 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 that's why I said, I'll, I'll say something I'm a little bit closer to, but obviously you start to think about like, fuck, what could we have done differently there? 
Mm. You know, because this guy is in the ultimate rock and a hard place. Oh, shit. You know, and now his family's without, you know. So that was one of those moments of like, eh. I know it's not super productive to think, um, you know, if I could do something different, what what would you have done different to do it again? In that situation? Yeah. Well, I think what we could have done is... I, I guess you personally, would you have done anything different? Well, I, th- I think you could, could push a little harder, right? So at the time, um, I like to think of like fear-based and love-based decisions. Fear-based is from a constricted place where you're not really getting all the answers, right? When you're open and thinking, you can draw a little bit more. There's nothing... There was no reason we couldn't have said something about because the the decision to let him go was made or not made, but kind of like asked. And it was like, okay, but you know, we could have held him longer. We could have held him and brought him to calf. We could have held him and done a little bit different. Like you don't know till you don't know. And I don't sit in a place of regret. Um, But what I, what I would say is I came at it from a place of hostility. Like you fuck. You know, yeah. that was my reaction. Not even computing that his, his, his children are exist. fucking being held captive, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. But sure. that's that's real-time decisions too. Though. Yeah, I mean, it's easy to armchair quarterback that stuff. And, uh, yeah, I mean, ideally, it, like if he could have told you that and then you could have set a trap for them, like give them bogus info and then, you know, save his family, What you know, that would be ideal. But you don't you don't know that until you until you know it you know and if by the time you find that out it's too late it's not like you could have done anything different but um all right, so so during this uh kind of three-day engagement um that was pretty sustained but uh, obviously there there were lulls at some point were there ever periods where um because as long as it was and there's 100 guys kind of in a in a river valley were there periods where you guys almost started to get overrun or or because i mean to me if i'm putting myself in the Taliban or Al Qaeda's shoes, um, that, that amount of time to kind of bring in reinforcements or regroup, were, were there ever any close calls that way? Yeah. Well, usually when everyone that you're fighting is all around you, you kind of get that feeling like of, of overwhelm of being yeah. overrun, right? Cause all the time you're not really in control because everywhere you go now they're around you. Uh, I remember at one point, um, we had a, a grape hut that we were kind of keeping our stuff inside, but on the roof, I'm on the roof of it. And I got a, uh, something similar to like your M60 or something like that, whatever the five, five, six version you guys yeah, use. The saw. the saw. That's yeah. exactly it. So I'm up there and I got the saw. <laughs> I got uh, M72s and it's just like me up there. And then the guys are kind of down below. So I'm calling out this, what's going on and just like running the machine gun it, it, yeah, there's dudes everywhere, you know, and they're popping out. So you're fucking running that. And it's like the snap by and I'm kind of out in the open really. Cause I'm not behind anything really. I'm on a roof, you know? So, um, I'm kind of like standing on a ladder. So I'm poking out like this, but enough to run the gun. Right. Yeah. And if I go down then for, you know, a good, 180 degrees of arc there goes the eyes um for the guys below and so running the machine gun i go through all the boxes uh you know we humped in and now we're we're in a few days so ammo's getting low get rid of that start launching some rockets i love the m72 yeah um bang for its buck it's such a great little tool yeah um and it was weird you know this is like where 
I have one of those visions, you know, of this woman running with her children in terror, in terror, you know what I mean? Because we've got artillery coming in and, uh, you know, we're doing our job. And then, um, yeah, running on M72s and I grab my gun and I got a scope on it and lean over. Uh, by this time, there's a guy up here with me now. Um, his name's Farmer. <laughs> um, bam dude dressed like uh, i never seen anyone of them dress like this like he had black on like he was really turned out in his whatever man jammies yeah. <laughs> yeah. um pops out i'm like okay i got you i could see him he's shooting towards where the americans were pops out again and, and you know like most of them they're doing the, t -t 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 -t, you know, like they're not, bam, pops out. Down he goes. Um, it so was, you dropped him with a, with a scoped weapon? It was, yeah, it was, it was a, uh, I had a scope on my, uh, we call it a C7. I'm trying to make it relatable. Um, it's like our M4? Your M4, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Uh, I, I got some flack for it. Luckily I had a good warrant who was like, fuck off, you know? Because it, what it did is it, I said I was in the weapons debt so um I'd be calling mortar mortar adjustments um was, the weapons debt's always in a position kind of of overwatch right we had a um that responsibility mm -hmm. so we coordinate a lot so the scope was huge for um that it was like glass is so important when you're trying to find people that are yeah. you know beyond a few hundred yards you know yeah people don't want to be seen they're, they're not going to want to be seen. Um, that, that was like, that was probably the most intimate kill I've ever had. About how far away was that? Do you know? Ah, I used probably like call it 150, 200 yards, yeah. somewhere in there. Yeah. You know, like the fog of war kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. He just, he thought he had a good position and he didn't. Yeah. Um, that wasn't his day. Anyways, we carry on doing the business and it was, it was like that. I feel that's, that's where I feel fortunate. Cause I was always in a position to, to be in the fight. Yeah. Um, not everyone always gets to be in the fight. Right. <clears throat> yeah. Um, which is, which can be shitty um, for those who aren't in it. For sure. Yeah. And it, it's uh, it's such a stroke of, uh, of luck, honestly, you know, where you end up and, and why and how, and um, you know, and it's typically irrespective of, caliber of individual too it's like just this unit was at the right fucking place at the right time or this one wasn't you know and ended up in fucking Djibouti sitting killing you know see, having contests to see how many flies they could kill with one swat of a fucking fly swatter you know yeah. it's like uh, it's it's weird how that works but um, so that whole deployment was pretty much like that a uh, lot yeah. lots of that kind of engagement. yeah it was it was uh um I think we got a lot of good work done mm -hmm. I know we got a lot of good work done we also had, it was a bit of a, it was here and there. You know, we were doing a handover with the Americans. So we were doing a lot of root reckies at times, you know. Like yeah. It was, it was, got to move right down to the Pakistan border. Um, yeah, it was pretty much like that the whole time. Yeah. Um, do you recall you were there nine months about how many, um, like, legit firefight engagements you got in? What's legit? Uh, like like what you were talking about, where it's 
you're you know it's snapping over your head uh you guys are are engaging guys and actually taking them out oh shit man we were tracking like what we could for kills Mm -hmm. and we stopped around like 150 oh wow um and then you know if you put in stuff like uh pred yeah calling in pred or artillery you know what i mean like those kind of auxiliary things um and then like beyond that like some of the other stuff is like closing down drugs anywhere that they're uh we didn't we didn't deal with drug growing but anywhere where they're processing it uh, we blew up a bunch of those facilities um stopped a bunch of ied makers yeah yeah we we, we i think we had a really disruptive i don't know what happened because in 08, when we went, it was a winter tour. And mm-hmm. usually in the winter, they kind of slowed down a yeah. bit. Um, but for some reason, they didn't. And it, uh, I think it bit them in the ass. We did, like I said, um, have a lot um, of casualties comparatively. Not around our company. Mm-hmm. Our company, um, there was a few wounded, um, some ricochets, you know, stuff like that. But not, no, no, no one was killed. It oh, was wow. like very, but what we did is we stayed very aggressive. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that's, your, that's, that's your tool there, right? Yeah. Um, you stay aggressive. You stay aggressive. Everywhere we went, we were very aggressive um, without being dickheads. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Without going full Russian, Russian invasion, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, because, yeah. you know, you could very easily make oh, the yeah, fucking it's a, Yeah. So. Oh, it's a slippery slope with, uh, I mean, any, any instances that way, especially when you're losing guys and, it, and there's some fucked up shit around it. It's easy for guys to transition into you know full berserker mode and and uh, yeah. just go fucking ape shit yeah 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 well and you know then, then all of a sudden kids are getting shot yeah you know and like it's like yeah where does it stop yeah um so all right so you come back from that deployment and then you went to sniper school after that no then i went to jtf2 i went through uh our selection <clears throat> our course and stuff like that yeah and, how how is that course lengthwise and difficulty comparatively? Uh, well, difficult is is it's all subjective. I it's a bit subjective, you know. But like the truth is, is uh, even most of um, like a lot of them are based on the old SAS model, you yeah. know what I mean, and then modified to what the seals need or what keg needs or whatnot, right? Yeah. Um, I would say I was fortunate. I got to be part of. Uh, kind of a research program on selections. And so I got exposed to a lot of them. I difficulty, here's how it works. They're what's called direct data mining. They're looking for qualities, right? And they'll squeeze them out of here or they'll squeeze you out of here, right? Right. Um, so they all do that pretty well in different ways. Ours, the selection itself is actually pretty short comparatively. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one week, the selection portion. Oh, wow. And then after that, you go on a 10-month assaulter course. With the assaulter course, though, it's, it's, it's a meat grinder. It's constantly, yeah. uh, you meet the standards or you don't. You meet the standards or you don't. But then they're kind of shaving the ice cube, too. Um, so it's still part of, you're not in, but they don't, they don't treat it like a selection where they're, um, they're actually trying to nurture people through. At this point, you've shown that you have the characteristics that they want. Yeah. So they want you to go through, right? Uh, especially so, in Canada. It's not like here in the U.S. Like you guys got a big, a big military to pull from and a lot of keen people to, to go. Yeah. Where us, uh, it's a smaller military and less 
people are likely to try out. Right. Uh, what would you say the attrition rate is for the actual Salter course? ballpark percentage well the the selections are pretty typical you know kind of nine to eleven percent um the assaulter course it can vary so the reason i say it can vary is um if you have strong individuals you know what it's like that's that's what a good leader does a good leader is a force multiplier he'll make or she'll make those around them better right so some years um you can have really good dudes and uh, the course starts with 30 people and you might get 20 to 25 finish some years um, there's been no one finish oh wow yeah so it, it depends like there's but there t- to say there's an attrition rate it would be just like a mean average and it would be just a just a number that doesn't actually equate right. to anything so like varies. like you'd see in buds or something you yeah. know what I mean? where it's like yeah this is the attrition rate yeah okay um and so that 10 month course is that pretty all-inclusive of or I guess I would say the the learning curve is it super steep where that 10 months is where you really learn how to be a fucking operator, I assume. We do. And it's also really steep. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I don't know how many times I felt like, Holy fuck, this, this thing's going to make me burn out. Sore neck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Just my whole fucking back. Oh, uh, uh, yeah. But, um, yeah, it, it, it's, a, it still feels <clears throat> like a meat grinder. You know, there's still, mold in the clay you know and every fucking moment of it's high pressure right because everything is a high standard now and you meet it or you don't right shooting's high standard fucking you know your airborne inserts high standard and uh but the idea of it is though is when you're done it that you're you're deployable i got you yeah and did you guys start with about 30 guys yeah, I think we had 30, if I remember right. We had 30 or 28 or something yeah. like that. About how many finished, do you remember? 25. 25, so yeah. big uh, yeah. big class. Yeah, I, well, ours was um, up until I left the unit. Uh, we had the, the biggest class finish. Oh, wow. Yeah, we had a, it was really prime time, though, because, you know, the wars were full swing. Everybody in that time frame really wanted to be an operator like 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 the conditions were really right for it mm-hmm. um in fact from my company that uh, went overseas that group there was a one two three four i think five of us and that that's that was like unheard of unheard of yeah yeah in, in that 10 month um assaulters course how is it broken down i would say that like if you were to look at it zoomed out the First thing you'd have is what's uh, like a table of contents almost. Yeah, like I would call it the black, the green, and the gray. So black roll is anything like uh, well, traditional black roll, you know, CQB that kind of stuff, counterterrorism stuff. Green is anything that you'd think of as green, you know, patrols like not patrols like green army patrols, but uh, land nav and field yeah, craft some and land nav, you know, seer, all that kind of jazz, um, gun camps, you know, working the really the that level of traditional it. conventional military. yeah yeah i wouldn't call it traditional because most of it i was not exposed to okay the, like but that same kind of stuff yeah, yeah. Uh, i would say with a, mostly a focus around reconnaissance okay if we were to kind of you know put a pin in the middle and then gray is anything in plain clothes um you know source handling that kind of jazz yeah. is it broken up pretty evenly split three three months and change of each of those not really it's a, it's a little bit that's kind of like 
it's not exactly like that, but that's what you'd be going through. So as you went through and they change it every year, they're, they're molding it differently. Um, it hasn't set still for a long time. Um, you'd start somewhere usually though shooting and then basic CQB. Um, cause if someone's not going to make it through, it's probably on those two things yeah. uh, are up front. Um, and, uh, yeah, we do our shooting down in Blackwater and uh, oh, that's cool. or Academy, whatever. Yeah. And then uh, CQB is done back at home and in a bunch of different places. Yeah. And, and they're the meat grinders. They're, they're, sure. they're the true meat grinders. Did you guys, uh, CQB and Assault-wise, uh, ever work with any American Tier 1 guys running houses with them and shit? Um, me, no, not personally. Yeah. Um, I did do some work in Iraq with them, though. Yeah. Um, but yes. Yeah. yeah. How, uh, I mean, of course you're a little biased. I mean, how, how would you compare yourselves to, to those guys as far as house movement? Well, so if we look at dev keg and then us, and then we'll, I'll say the, a couple of the SASs, um, they're all, they're all actually quite different in a lot of ways. Um, I mean, I, I guess just in terms of, uh, how good they are. If, like if, if let's say you're a hostage, Mm-hmm. Right. So this, uh, this is the most non-biased <laughs> way I can put it. I guess you're a hostage and, and you get to pick who's coming to fucking save you. Who, who are you going to pick? I'm going to pick us, but yeah. <laughs> um, I can't look at it anything but biased. Right. Um, because what happens though is we started like what's called the global engagement strategy and we work with these units and we share, you know, so we get to learn their hard lessons. They get to learn our lessons. You know what I mean? So yeah. there, there's quite a bit of, through lines, but there is one difference. We have a national mandate and the national mandate changes how we do things nationally. And I know that might sound like, okay, why? Um, the assumption of risk goes up and then generally, you know, like in Afghanistan, you're dealing with thick mud walls. Thick mud walls change how you can do CQB. Yeah. They give you more advantages and disadvantages as opposed to like plaster. Plaster gives you different advantages and disadvantages, what changes your style. So I would say that we're the only ones that have kind of multiple styles that will turn on and off um, that can flow into each other. I got you. Um, and, and it would mostly stem from that because we, our roots were in, in the cop world mm-hmm. and then we went into the, not went into the military, but then molded it to that. Um, so yeah, what you need for the time is different, you yeah. know? Um, and the way you move, the speed at which you move because of those things, uh, things you can use like grenades or no grenades, you know, all that kind of stuff changes things. Uh, ROEs. In the, the, that class that you went through were, were most of the guys that went through that similarly background uh, to you or were there like legit, grew up in the fucking streets of Toronto guys that showed up? Uh, by and large, you know, if we want to look at like stats, most people come from some kind of um, nowadays, either CSOR or some kind of jump company. So they're infantry and they're airborne qualified. Mm-hmm. Most of them come from a rural background. Yeah. But uh, <clears throat> yeah, there was a couple. I, I can only, no, you know what? I say a couple. I can think of one. Uh, no, there was a couple guys who were more, uh, uh, city boys. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and they're a little bit different. Sure. You know, um, but they were, they were good operators. Nothing. Yeah. No, no. Um, 
All right. So you go, you go through that. Um, before I forget, I just, I know guns are a huge fucking sticking point, both here and in Canada. Uh, with your background, is there any credence given to that as far as you being able to carry or own firearms differently than an average Canadian citizen? No. Like you, it's still a motherfucker for you to, like you, you can't carry a fucking pistol around town in no. Canada um, legally. They were working on changing that, and I don't know where that's at, where yeah. um, an operator could carry but I don't know where they're at with that. Is it different for police? Can can police carry off duty there the way they can here? I think so, yeah. Um, but I don't know that for sure, and I don't know what that looks like. Yeah. Um, the thing is, is guns are a little less tolerated in some ways in Canada. In some ways, actually surprisingly more, but in other ways not. Yeah. Especially when we start talking what type, you know, like a pistol or whatnot. Like in Canada, we can carry shorter shotguns than you guys in the U.S. can. You know, like there's like some weird stuff like that because there's quite a bit of gun culture in Canada because a lot of it's rural. Yeah. Um, but yeah, when you start talking pistols and stuff like that, you know, then it, I guess the, the real answer would be I don't know yeah. uh, where it's at and what it is. I think there should be. I mean, if there's someone who's qualified to carry a gun and use it for protection for themselves or for others, it's probably a serviceman or woman. Yeah. But do you do you keep much of a gun collection in, in, in your property? Um, so, as I mentioned earlier, my former wife she was an American, and we had a pretty substantial gun collection down here. Some yeah. uh, some custom long rifles and a few pistols, and then some other rifles, and um, and then I have for my program for the special forces experience for the process, I probably have a good seventy guns oh, okay. for that. You know, yeah, uh, and then up up north, I have a small collection of what I need yeah. Uh, to feel like if the lights go out, I got what I need and I can get more of what I need. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. So you go, you make it through selection. Um, you, did you go through sniper school not long after that? Nope. Nope. Um, I, uh, I was uh, kind of what we just call a number one and number two and then an MOE for a while before I hit up sniper school. Uh, it was a couple years. Timeline's so hazy, you know. Yeah. I don't know what it is revisiting this stuff with you. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, it was, it was, but I think it might have been in like my third year. Okay. Did that. We started working down here in Texas actually uh, with Accuracy First mm. uh, up in the panhandle. And um, that was kind of my first test of long stuff we were developing we we're pushing our marksman program call mm-hmm. it like a lesser sniper yeah um and we were yeah we were using a lot of the stuff from there uh, which really changed the game it was um, it was good stuff in those couple of years prior to going to sniper did you do multiple deployments uh i did some yeah nothing like uh too haywire or nothing and then a few that i that are just kind of off the books if yeah. you know sure um well let's talk about those I'm kidding. Um, sorry. I know. I, 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 I get it. I know people want to hear it and all that, but it's like, yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm just fucking with you. Um, so the, so you go through sniper school, some of it's here, some of it's there. Is there, or was there not a, um, like a, a certified sniper course that's run in house with JTF two or, or within CanSoft as a whole? Uh, no, we run our own. 
So just kind of a almost piecemealed like. No, no, it's it's the best in the world. Yeah, yeah, that that I'll say. I'll say that we hold the best sniper course in the really? world. Really? Yeah, uh, I'll say that, and I can get flack, pushback, all that, but uh, the proof's in the pudding. Uh, we have the longest kill. Um, Do you hold that? No, I don't hold that. You know the guy that does. For, oh yeah, yeah. Can you, I mean, were you there or, or do you know the circumstances of it? Yeah, yeah, I know the circumstances of it. Um, Can you share those? Well, um, I'm just trying to think where my boundaries are. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, you can think about it if you want. But. Yeah, no, 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 I, uh, I can say a few things. It was a yeah. 50 cal. Um, it was filmed, which is rare. Yeah. Just coincidentally filmed. Um it uh, was from a high rise. It was. Uh, we don't really do so much traditional sniper spotter. We train like we do use spotters when we can, but we self spot pretty much everything, um, even on a fifty cal. Um, it was. It was kind of like a Candyland situation, you know. We talked about it earlier, where all the pieces fall into place, and you know. As hardcore as they are, ISIS was no more. They were pretty zealoty, and they they kind of were doing a lot of almost traditional style fighting against well the fucking West, which is like it was ridiculous to be honest. So, anyways, yeah, they move in. Um, they're about to not overtake, but move in on a position of, I'm just trying to think of what the Kurds, what, what they're called, their, their special forces. This was in Iraq. This was in Iraq, yeah, uh, in Mosul. And uh, anyways, oh, man, I want, I'm going to tell you a story after this because right. there's more to the story. Like, yeah. I just don't know where, where I kind of step. But anyways, uh, it was a phenomenal shot. It was maybe maybe the longest shot that'll ever happen from a powder fired shoulder fired weapon well well just because right now you know you go bigger than 50 and now you're getting into turf where it's really fucking hard to actually hold in a shoulder Mm -hmm. um let alone the optics yeah and the algorithms needed to make that kind of shot um you know someone will probably do like whatever that is in miles, you know, it's, it's 3.6 something kilometers. That's um, how long the shot was. Yeah. God damn. Um, yeah, I know it's a beast. It's yeah. A beast. <clears throat> it, what, so it was a, an overwatch or a high rise, uh, scenario. Was it a guy, uh, holding a, an RPG or a weapon or what can you share? Like the circumstances operationally kind of. Yeah. Like? Well, I, yeah, they were, they were actually, they were stacking up outside on a wall getting ready to make a move around a camera. I couldn't really give, um, they were, yeah. So where the overwatch was, they presented like rape broadside. Um, and yeah, shot goes off. It's like 10 or 11 seconds now. You know, this stuff's going up. That's crazy. (laughs) So high. So it's 10 seconds. You know, just for someone not to even move and then bam, hits a guy, rolls down a hill and then gets up again. Yeah. That's fucking wild. Yeah. Absolutely wild. Um, it's a thing of beauty in a lot of ways. Have you seen the video? Yeah. Yeah. Is that like on, 
I don't even think Live League even exists anymore. But no, is, no. is it something public out there at all? Or no, no, no. no nobody's not mad. yet. Anyways, yeah, nobody's um, fucked that up yet. <laughs> nobody's fucked that up yet. I, you know, I, to be honest, I'm not. I don't know why it couldn't be. Well, yeah, I, I, as of now, I, I don't know why. I know there's some tech and stuff that, um, actually, ITAR, you know, so it's American owned. Yeah, that that might have something to do with that. Yeah, um, but you know, it, it's not like it's not known. I, I do have. There's something else I'll, I'll speak to you about offline, why I think it might not be. Yeah. Um, but I, yeah, I don't know why. I, well, here's the deal. The, the Canadian military sucks at promotion. Mm-hmm. They suck at it. And then JTF2, its fucking motto is facta non verbo, which means deeds, not words. Yeah. So it's terrible at it. Like, like literally, I'm the only one who's really talking about JTF2. Right. Um, and I kind of got a bit of a riot act on where my arcs are and they're trying to open them, you know, but it's, you know, we're talking red tape stuff, right? Yeah. So there's, there's not a natural tendency to do it um, down here. And it's because, in, especially like in Texas or something, but um, people appreciate their military much more in Canada. It's, there's a lot of liberal pushback. And I, and I, I know I'm generalizing like as if all liberals don't like the military, but it's like, they they don't understand that they're kind of suckling at the teeth at the work that that has done you know and but so there's this tendency to not do that you know because then it's not that it does but then it starts getting looked at like almost like propaganda right you know yeah um all right so you go through uh the best sniper course in the world (sighs) and then uh i can see it now yeah (laughs) and then um well how long is it uh, it's four months. Four months. Um, so you, you finish with that, and then you go, now you go back on deployment as a JTF2 sniper. Uh, no. So what happened is I, I did my sniper course, um, and then uh, I deployed with the, the skill set. So, yeah, I'm a sniper. You know, I, I had a long gun and all that stuff. That's what I, I brought one of them to Iraq with me. Yeah. Um, but I'm technically not in the sniper troop okay. yet. Okay. And, it, and it's a lot of it's, so you got to think it's a small unit. It's like I was an MOE, so they needed to keep their breacher and their team, you know? Yeah. Um, so there's, it's kind of, it's not politics, but it's just a fucking the chess you. game, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, so yeah, no, I, um, when I deployed to Iraq, uh, I was an MOE. I, 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 like I said, I brought a long gun with me just in case, but uh, yeah. unfortunately I only used it uh, for in training, like for training their guys. Yeah. Um, and then, that was it for that. Really. And how was that deployment overall? It was good. It was good. So we were up in uh, uh, kind of the Erbil, Suleimania, Suleiman, Erbil, um, Mosul kind of triangle. Yeah. It was kind of the stomping grounds. Northern part. Yeah. Yeah. Um, was it a, a busy, active, combative deployment? Um, yes. Not Not like... Not great. So what happened is we had really good ROEs and then those got clawed back. Um, so then you know how it goes. And then it's all semantics, right? Advise and assist. And, yeah. Um, but ISIS had dug in. You know, I still don't <clears throat> understand their logic here because every fucking time they try to do something, airstrike or like they didn't really have much to touch yeah. uh, the line, you know? Uh, the the pesh line, if you will. Um, There was a few things, you know, like um, there's there's a lot of good work done. 
they're uh fuck i wish i could remember what their special forces like because that's what we were doing we were working with keg and we built up this sf group and uh um whatever the ops became they were, they, they went by their certain names um but they did a lot of good work yeah 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 um and uh it, it was it was it was like spicy, but it wasn't too spicy. You know, it was like the kind of thing where we're going to the coffee shop and an IED goes off. You know what I mean? Like it's yeah. like a real weird mixture of tense and not tense. Yeah, you know, because which um, is uh, arguably more nerve wracking because it's such a wide swing of comfortable, complacent to holy fuck, the world's coming down and then back. You know, that back and forth I think is worse than just kind of always being on edge. Exactly. Well, so either you let the natural survival cycles kick in and you're yeah. in that kind of that, that cold spot. Yeah. Um, well, and it also made it more confusing in some ways too. Um, because now you're like, you're gathering intelligence and you know, like who's working who here. And um, <clears throat> it's, yeah, it makes it not unpleasant, but like you said, it gives a dynamic that's can yeah. be difficult to navigate for sure. Yeah. Uh, so you finished that deployment. Were there was there a subsequent deployment that you went as a like tasked sniper? Where that's mostly what you were doing? No, I never got deployed as a sniper. I got out uh, um, shortly after that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I, I was slated, mm-hmm. um, and this is where some of the politics come in because I was supposed to go yeah. somewhere, and I wasn't, and that uh, led into my decision to to get out. My decision to leave. Yeah. yeah. Was the, uh, so the, the glass kill that you had with your C7, is that what, uh, was, was the more sniper-esque shot that you got Unfortunately, <laughs> before yeah. you went through sniper school? Yeah. yeah. Man, that sucks. It, it totally sucks. Yeah. I but that's the fucking military for you. you know? Well, you said it early on, man. You don't get to always pick. I mean, shit, you never get to, you know? I mean, uh, what was the, the, the second deployment that, uh, that you'd say from talking about that, that you wanted to, to go over and, and kind of cover? Um, well, it was kind of the Iraq one. I know it's not like a ton. But, uh, yeah. Um, was, was there um, anything that stuck out on it that, uh, that was, you know, something that you either think back on often or, or that seemed like it was a, a tide turner? Um, for you guys or, or who you were working with? Were there any, any kind of standout ops that way? Um, there was, but you know, it, it was, we started off really, we had like really hot ROEs. We were the only ones that had full uh, ROEs there at the time. And, yeah. uh, it started off really nice, you know, a lot of frontline stuff, all that kind of stuff. Um, but it was all, none of it was really intimate. That was the thing because um, then they got pulled and we built up this unit. And then uh, unfortunately for me, uh, I left. And then that's when they really started using these units and then just started hitting targets everywhere. A um, lot around Mosul. Yeah. Um, Mosul got a lot of the, cause that was kind of like the last stronghold of ISIS really. Yeah. You know, they were, they were in Syria and stuff like that. And there was like work being done all around there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But like, like I said, like unfortunately, where I can actually talk to runs out pretty quick there. Yeah. What was the, uh, was the mission set for you guys when you went there to augment American forces, uh, with what they were doing or did you have your own standalone orders? Yeah, we had our own standalone and, uh, but then 
So something that's kind of interesting in that realm is you start to dictate your job too, right? You get pushed down, hey, go do this. And then once you're doing that, you start forming what you're actually going to do. That, that's what's nice about being in these kinds of units is it's okay, we need to do this and we need to do this and we need to do this. And then it's about finding the work, right? Okay, where can we augment with the Americans? Where can we you know, gather intelligence? Where can we get closer to that front line, right? Because that's really what you're trying to do. You know, mm -hmm. You're a soldier um, looking to do that kind of business. Um, so no, no, we had our own. Uh, and it, it was, it, in, in fact, actually when we were there, the, the first coalition uh, person to die was a Canadian. Oh, no shit. Yeah, it was uh, a seesaw guy. A bit of an unfortunate kind of blue on green. Not kind of, it was a blue on green. Uh, they were coming back from an op and, you know, just an unfortunate series of events where one of the Kurds is yelling down in Kurdish and he responds in Arabic because he was an Arabic-speaking Canadian and, you know, ISIS speaks Arabic. <laughs> yeah. So they had no night vision stuff. Anyways, they light it up and, you know, it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Anyways, he ends up getting shot. Um, they come close to saving him. But, uh, yeah, he was like, so when that second, third, whatever, I don't even know what generation of the Afghan war, or not Afghan, Iraq war was, uh, yeah, we were the first ones to lose someone there as well. Oh, wow. Which was, for, as a Canadian, it was really kind of, not cool, fuck, that's the awful word. Yeah. But it was like, yes, finally, you know, we're showing that we're also a fucking real military here that does its own foreign policy. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, were there significant gunfights uh, in that deployment or was it mostly tit for tat little shit here and there? Mm, there was some. Uh, there were some that were more significant, yeah, for sure. There were some that were closer, but it was mostly tit for tat. Yeah. So until until the the like the real counterinsurgents started once so what happened is all the teeth were taken out of the coalition. I call it the coalition, but from everybody, the teeth was taken out. And I think what they wanted to do, unlike prior attempts, is they didn't want it to be like a full American face or a full Canadian face. They really, I don't know if it was the Kurds who dictated this or whatnot, wanted like a high Kurd presence. But yeah. the problem was, is they just, when we first went, weren't ready to do that, you know, yeah. um, it took a while to get them to that stage. I gotcha. The, uh, the gunfights that did happen, what, uh, what were those like? Uh, they were lots or, of small arms fire, but they did have some, like, uh, uh, some of the Russian, whatever, 55 mils, that kind of stuff. They did yeah. have some, uh, older artillery that would come in. And, yeah. uh, the, the truth is, is they really, they sucked. They weren't really good at putting pressure on, so there was nothing that got really too aware. You know, there was uh, some guys from the unit that almost got shot a few times, but it was like completely just haphazard and random. You know what yeah. I mean? Like nothing, nothing too hairy. But you got to think, you know, hairy becomes relative now. Sure. The first time most people are shot at is not pleasant, right? So yeah. a gunfight that has one kind of pressure and intensity now might not seem so hairy to me. You know what right. I mean? Yeah. Um, that's, that's what the nature of the beast. It becomes relative. Right? Yeah. Was there any of them that stood out as uh, 
where you guys were the most, or is there one that stands out where you guys were really successful in, in uh, making a, a big dent in uh, any of their troops? No, not really. I would say though that the the most successful that our unit had would be the one with the long range kill. That was the final push through Mosul. That was part of that final push. And in that there was all kinds of stuff done, um, you know, from above, from the ground. But again, like unfortunately teeth were taken out and um, yeah, not really. What is there any, any more of it that you can share as far as that final push? Um, no, not really. Not really. Yeah. Uh, all right. So you decide to politics start getting involved, uh, with your decision-making process. And ultimately what was the last straw that made you decide, fuck this, I'm, I'm getting out. Well, um, being pushed off a tour, not pushed off, um, overlooked is a polite way of saying it. Yeah. Um, I, I met someone, I met Jess and, uh, I had this feeling that my service was done. So the, to me, the military stopped actually being about service and it became more about being someone's pointy end of a spear for their policy. And uh, I saw that more and more and I, uh, I needed to move on and do my own thing. So when I met her, she didn't want to be part of the military. Uh, she came from a military family. Her dad was a Vietnam vet. Her grandfather, actually I have a picture of him on one of the original, or he was on the original, whatever uh, the seals were before. Uh, what were they? The NCDUs? Yeah. Oh, shit. Yeah, he's got his little white gitch on with the knife on the side. Okay. Or it may have been UDT. I guess it depends on if UDT, it was. In, UDT, I think, is what okay. they were calling it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if it was so demolitions. In, in World War II, where there was the no, uh, naval combat demolition units that, you know, mo most uh, of the community would consider them as kind of the the godfathers or the frog fathers of the, of the frogmen, frog uh, which turned into underwater demolition teams and those turned into the seal teams. But, um, that's fucking, that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. I was able to dig up. I had some access to some stuff that was kind of buried away. Yeah. That's wild. And, uh, I found it and bam, there he is. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. So you end up deciding uh, to get out. What, uh, what was that transition and process like in getting out and then figuring out what you were going to do as you, as you springboard out of the military? Um, well, unlike a lot of guys, I didn't want to do any contracting. Yeah. I was done with it. Unlike almost everybody. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I get it though. It's a tool, yeah. right? It, and it's, it's like, Hey, I just did, you know, almost 15 years of being one way. Yeah. And it's like, okay, what am I going to do now? Now I can do that uh, for half the year and make four times as much. Exactly. Yeah. So it, it, the, the, it gets pretty shiny, right? But I was yeah. like, okay, I don't want to do that. So um, Jess and I put our heads together and we started coming up with the special forces experience, which took what I wanted to use from the SF. And then it met where I believe service actually is, where helping people um, to me truly is. And it's, it's, it's such a big point because people will continue to transition and that finding identity afterwards is so important to, mm -hmm. to mental health for cops, for servicemen and women. Like it yeah, doesn't it's matter. It, 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 it's massive, right? Your entire brain, its whole structure has to reform. Everything you do is got to reform. So that was, that was a bit tricky. I, what I started doing was, uh, 
Um, I, my, my parents invested in real estate, you know, um, fixing up apartments, that kind of stuff. And that's where I started. I was like, I, I know this, I can do this. I did that. And I, I made a bunch of money and I got bored with it. Like in one year, it was, wasn't really for me. So I, anyways, I started developing this program. I take everything I learned from all my military career, my own life experience. And I just kind of like started asking the question to men, well, what do you want? What do you want differently? You know, what is it you're looking for? Why do you feel incomplete? Those kinds of questions. Um, and that with all the human dynamics that I, I gathered through special access groups and stuff like that. And what is that? How do we shape that? How do we take, so the military, they're masters at forming people into being soldiers. You know, they're like arguably we're, better at it now than we've ever been oh for sure we are you know like, yeah there's so much science and technology science behind it now and too, tech you know? you know like yeah you know people might get like this vision of spartans being <clears throat> the best but uh i i don't i don't buy that for a second yeah um for doing the business there's no better time so anyways what happens if you take those concepts and you apply them to growth to helping people change who they are be more uh, than they were before live closer to their psyche, you know, a more holistic lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Anyways, so we, we created uh, the process. That's our, our, the program that runs underneath it. And uh, what we do is we facilitate post-traumatic growth and adjust. And uh, it's been extremely rewarding. It's been amazing. Um, how, uh, how many courses or, or how many students have you had since you started? Uh, we're on our sixth serial now. So oh, now wow. we run one in Canada and one in the U.S. Oh, wow. Um, COVID kind of forced that necessity because the yeah. border closed. And so we had Americans coming up to Canada, but then they couldn't. So we opened up a company down here in the U.S. We run it in northern Idaho. And, yeah, we're on Serial 6. Is it, um, is it the same name company-wise? No, the, the actual company that holds it isn't, but it's all under the Special okay. Force Experience. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, so anyone looking would just go to the specialforceexperience.com and uh, they can follow themselves down the rabbit hole. Okay. And what is the... Um uh, the citizen green how, how does that differ from kind of the normal program that you do okay so citizen green um for a while I, I know that my methods work my behavioral modification methods work they're very holistic they're very healthy um i was approached by uh, global compliance application core and sana one GCAC is a tech firm that does blockchain research on things that grow on plants, in this case, medical cannabis. Sana is the grower. Um, What they found is that for vets, mainly in Canada, and it's starting to happen here in the U.S., is they started giving vets access to medical marijuana, but it was just basically fire and forget, you know, like, no instructional use, yeah. nothing like that. No rehabilitation to it. So same way with uh, opioid-based pain medication back in uh, the 2000s and early 2010s where it was just like, here, take these. Exactly. And, but now you got someone addicted yeah. and their life has fallen apart yeah. and blah, 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 right? So they approached the Special Forces experience uh, uh, to create Citizen Green together where troops, vets uh, get access to medical marijuana but then they feed back to the tech. And then what happens there is we're building a database on what's actually happening, how to actually use it. Um, like not just, 
this is how you smoke it, right? Like the problem is, is like this stuff doesn't come with instructions. Like even a shampoo bottle comes with fucking instructions. You yeah. Know? And it's like, here, troops fucking get addicted to this. So right now what's happening is everybody's just thrown at them. And these two companies were like, okay, wait, let's do a more holistic approach. And so what'll happen is uh, we're creating a community for these vets. We're creating holistic courses to help move them through not just identity shifts, but uh, how to navigate PTS or PTSD, um, how to how to approach this whole thing with a new lens, yeah. um, really. And then what happens though is, you know, it kind of gives them more purpose because they get to feed back this info, yeah, and it feeds back into the system so that, you know, myself, you know, I have TBI from <clears throat> fucking uncounted explosions and shit you know i come back and then i start using these things kind of like okay what works what works what doesn't work right um so that we can get ahead of the cycle faster because what's happening is like it's just people are just getting addicted to these things and yeah. um, it's actually quite nice to see a tech and a grow up yeah. do this uh, it's really quite beautiful and um yeah, we're looking super forward to it. We, we're already starting to gather data down here in the U.S. and California. It'll be a little bit different down here because state by state regulations are so different. Yeah, um, but the, the the it'll make its way around. Yeah, is um is there like an online portion at all of what you guys do, or is it all like workshop uh, experience? Yeah. yeah. So when we created the process, there's an in person event, but there's four phases to it: one, two, three, four. Um, there's a selection and then there's uh, holistic workups and then there's the event, an eight day intense event. And then there's the post. Okay? Oh, okay. So all growth cycles, you need to do things before, during and after. And that's where we kind of modeled phase two, phase three, phase four. Mm -hmm. But when we created them, we created some online programs. Uh, one of them is called the trials and it's a 12 week course that people go through. Uh, it teaches them, it gives them new language. There's a big portion of it. Um, but they go through and there's a psychological silo, physiological, contemplative, and then sleep and nutrition. The idea is to move them to being their own coach mm. closer. Not like so much physical coaching, but almost like life coach. Yeah. How to tune into yourself better. Uh, and then it has some challenges in there um, to really, uh, what we noticed, um, we actually, in any of these discussions we just had, they're all altered states of consciousness. Anytime you move away from whatever a baseline would be, it's an altered state of consciousness. And when you do that, you move your mind to a high entropy state. What happens there, kind of shake up the snow globe, is it has high potentiality for different patterning. And the idea here is to do that on purpose, give them the tools to do that on purpose. And then, yeah, and then we'll segue lots of those lessons over to Citizen Green, where um, we're going to be bringing in researchers, scientists, and then We'll call them professionals, <laughs> professional weed smokers, <laughs> professional <laughs> medical cannabis users, like yeah. that actually know how to test it, use it. Yeah. It, well, to actually use it properly, you know, yeah. you do this when you do this, you know, if you smoke this much, do this, you know, yeah. and beyond just, um, <clears throat> you know, simple kind of methods. Yeah. I got you. That's some fascinating shit. Uh, so you're on your, you're on your sixth, uh, course. How, how often are you guys doing them? Uh, two a year, two a year, one in the spring, one in the fall. Uh, and then in two years, we're going to be doing one in New Zealand oh, wow. with a uh, warfighter athletic. Oh, cool. Um, out of there. And, uh, so we're, we're there for, for the process. Yeah. yeah. We're running, uh, two a year right now. About how many students go through, uh, 
So it varies. Um, you'd be surprised how many people quit before they even get to the bus. Really? Yeah. Um, this next one, we're up around 46. Oh, wow. But 30 is kind of that number in and out. So what happens is I like to keep like a two-to-one ratio for cadre to candidates um, to make sure it's very intimate uh, because what happens is as they go through, especially the, the eight-day portion, the kind of in-person portion, um, we want it to evolve with them. So when it comes to figuring out your dynamics, um, you'll start to display certain characteristics as you go. And what we want to do is we want to pressure certain avenues of that. So we alter the state of consciousness by, you know, pressuring physiology and psychology. That changes their perception. And once we change that perception, that's when they can find new avenues, new behaviors. They can alter behaviors and they can add ones they want. We never dictate what they should be. Yeah. Um, I think that would be a bit unfair. Um, but we present those conditions for them yeah. to do that. Okay. And is it uh, is it set up as... Uh, in conjunction with any nonprofits that help uh, help pair uh, guys that, that need that with that, or how does that work? Yeah, so what we're doing, uh, Mike, is we mostly focus on what we call high achieving men. That's what just it's not to put people on a different level, but the idea is that they can go and they can use these new tools to disseminate like that. Um, up in Canada right now, the nonprofits aren't as prolific as they are down here. Yeah. Uh, we've been trying to work. So what will happen is there will be pe people who sponsor <clears throat> certain people. Um, thing is, is psychological stability has to be in place. Um, otherwise, you could destabilize someone more. I got you. Um, and that's not what the program's designed for. Yeah. Um, we we That's what Citizen Green will be for. It's, it, that'll be our... Um, contribution our back. contribution back that way yeah, yeah. Uh, also we're, we're doing a documentary on post-traumatic growth oh no shit which will be basically we're you know we'll highlight trauma and ptsd but we're gonna just kind of proliferate these tools out into the world as much as we can yeah um with a docuseries oh, that's awesome yeah that's good stuff we're uh we're so where can people find uh special forces experience, uh, information or, um, you know, how do, how do they get a hold of you as far as that goes? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, people can head to the special forces experience.com and then in the menu, you'll see all our programs. Okay. Ross, I also have a long range shooting program. If anyone's interested, oh, cool. just throw it out there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the process citizen green, it's all there easily navigable. Uh, or you can find me at Jeff Depotti underscore on Instagram. <laughs> Or the special or special force experience. Okay. On Instagram. And uh, so that's a business you started with your ex-wife. Yeah. yeah. And you, but and so you guys are still still partners on that. Yeah. Does that present challenges being? Does uh, that present challenges? Is <laughs> that a dumb question? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, yeah. I guess I'm curious how you even fucking pull that off. Well, no, this is what happened. Sometimes a relationship creates a cocoon that oh. you just can't break out of. So we've decided to step aside from that. Yeah. Um, you know. I've, I've been diagnosed with severe PTSD and that played into the relationship. You know, anyways, it was, it was coupling us in a way that we couldn't break free of these things. So we, we just really kind of <clears throat> scheme of things started navigating this. I got you. So yes, as business partners, it has had some moments of, <laughs> um, but actually it goes really good. We communicate really well together. We like working together. Yeah. We, uh, we work very well together. Yeah. Um, we complement each other really well. Yeah, that's good. Um, 
but it's been interesting. Yeah. I can imagine. I can, I can only imagine. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, good shit, man. Well, it's uh, it's awesome having you on. I appreciate you taking the time again. It's uh, you know, Canadian military as a whole, uh, but especially Canadian special operations have have played a pretty significant role. Uh, in both Iraq and Afghanistan and and elsewhere um, that I think very few Americans realize, uh, you know, how, how much skin in the game you guys have have had over the last couple of decades, um, you know, supporting our military and, and and being right there with with our guys doing all the same shit and, and uh, you know, losing folks and, and going through all the same stuff. So um, yeah, I, I appreciate both your service. Thank you for it. Uh, and everything that you've done and, and again coming down and, and uh, being willing to, to talk about your experiences and sharing it with uh, with us good old American folks yeah yeah I, I love coming down here man yeah <laughs> awesome uh, you gotta get some barbecue while you're here for sure probably but yes yes that's on uh, the agenda. yeah well thank you again anything else you want to uh, mention before we wrap it up no man I, I appreciate you having me on I really do yeah absolutely um, yeah it's an absolute pleasure yeah no it's uh, it's great great talking with you so uh, for you guys, the listener, I uh, hope you appreciate that, that different up north perspective. Uh, I guess you're a, a Yankees Yankee as far as uh, Americans go. But but uh, thank you for uh, for tuning in show after show. We appreciate you. If you didn't like it, feel free to choke yourself. And uh, <laughs> until next time, this is Mike Drop. was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to chumbacasino.com and play over a hundred casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast, with first-hand witnessed accounts of the strange and unexplained, covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.